0: Cinemaniacs, welcome back to another edition of Den of Sin with Devin and James. I'm Devin Lucas, and with me always is my co-host and close friend, James. How you doing, James Dufresne? I think we're saying our last names for the first time on this show. (laughs) I was going to say, this is the first time. Hey, Devin, I'm doing good. How are you doing, man? I'm doing okay. I I figured we may as well, uh, I don't think it's any secret to anybody that's listening, but may as well start taking actual credit for this podcast when we do actually do it.
1: Uh, is it taking credit or taking responsibility? Because I think there's two separate things.
0: You know, <laughs> you raise a very interesting question, James.
1: <laughs> I mean, like, we have to, we have to, you know, we have to fess up to our crimes, own up to our crimes, and take responsibility. But uh, exactly. uh, I, of course, I jest, but uh, uh, hopefully uh, our listeners find the humor in that and they don't hold us accountable. But yeah, how have you been? It's been a while since we've recorded. It's been a minute. It, we, we seem to, that seems to be this our sort of go about normally our sort of a modus operandi is that we have some big gaps between recordings. So how have you been between the uh, the recordings? I've been okay. Not a whole, whole lot to report.
0: My own creative stuff, I'm I'm actually doing all right in. Uh, other elements of, of life are, are a little unknown right now, but for the most part. And, and keeping creative, that always kind of helps to keep me sane. Uh, but you're right, we do take these long breaks between recordings. And this time there was the usual putting off because of weather or not feeling well, or our usual list of things that might keep us from recording. But this time we've also had a couple of false starts that I think pushed us back by a few weeks actually, because uh, well, this episode that we're recording now was initially supposed to be something completely different. Yeah. And, and then uh, after Ned Beatty passed away, mm-hmm. And uh, RIP Ned Beatty. And I didn't post anything to our social media about it or anything because I figured we would do a whole episode deep diving into Ned Beatty's career. And so we started in on that. And that pushed us back a little bit. And then Richard Donner passed away.
1: Yes, unfortunately.
0: Yes. uh, Nothing against Ned Beatty. Uh, I would still love to do a deep dive on Ned Beatty someday. Although I found it, it was, it was a little challenging trying to predict what the show about him would be like, because he was 100% character actor and maybe, in the top five best character actors of his generation. And I just felt like everything we would be talking about would be about the people that he acted with or the people he uh, who directed him or because he wasn't playing the main roles in any of these things. I think we would have spent a lot of time talking about other people anyways. And when I heard the unfortunate news about Richard Donner, uh, my immediate thought, well, <laughs> I had several other immediate thoughts, but when it came to the podcast, the first thought I had was uh by doing Richard Donner, we can also do some uh some exploring of some of Ned Beatty's more fun roles as well. So I guess let's since the you know that that's already kind of mentioned and let's go ahead and talk about Beatty for a second here, let's maybe start with Superman because we have so many biggies that we can talk about in this episode. Let's let's get that one out of the way first.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, definitely my first exposure to Donner. It's funny because I was thinking about this. Richard Donner might be one of the very first directors outside of Steven Spielberg, whose names I knew and knew what he was responsible for. You know, it was one of those things where, you know, I'm a big comic book nerd Who's have probably brought up on this thing before. I still remember having a Superman the movie T-shirt uh, and a Superman the movie TV dinner tray. Remember those <laughs> people used to live eating on? I had the Superman uh, one
0: as well. I, I had the one where Superman was in the Fortress of Solitude. Maybe it was Superman 2.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I had, I think the T-shirt and the TV tray were very similar where it was him flying. I think it was just two different photos. The T-shirt was great. Do you remember those old in the early 70s to the, well, mid-70s, I guess, to the early 80s where it was like, it was almost like an iron-on, but you bought it like that where it was like slick and eventually would crack and sort but it was like shiny and sort of sparkly. Yeah, um, and, it,
0: and it, I still have some weird sense memory in the very back of my brain of how those things smelled, too. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yes, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, obviously, you know, it's one... I think, obviously, he he's done some big, 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 big films and some franchises and stuff, but I think Superman's probably the thing he's probably... If not the thing he's most no, well-known for, probably one of the top two. Obviously, as a purist, as a comic book fan... There were things about the super his the Superman movies which were so not accurate to the, res- the source material as far as his powers and all sorts of crazy things. But it's still, to this day, at the heart of it, the most dead-on, perfect encapsulation of a comic book character, who Superman was, the ideals of Superman. I have a few things I'm going to talk about with the Donner's approach to his whole... Um, um versimilitude. I I can never say that word, but his approach to filmmaking, which is make it believable, whatever. I have a few th- things I'm gonna say about that later. Me too, yeah. actually. Uh and that's the
0: that's the precise word, versimilitude. Uh I, I want to get it tattooed on me because of Richard Donner.
1: <laughs> and I'm serious, I think that might be my next thing. <laughs> I like that. But yeah, it was one of my first favorite movies. As much as I love Donner, I cannot, and I know you'll agree with me on this, I cannot say enough about. obviously Margot Kidder was great, very idiosyncratic. Obviously, while it's not the most accurate portrayal of Lex Luthor ever, it's one of the most memorable, but I owe so much of that, my love of that movie. And I think the popular movie to Christopher Reeve, what he was able to do as Superman, how he really brought that character to life. In fact, there's a video online I saw maybe two years ago, maybe right at the beginning of COVID that of course I'd seen, but, and I even talked about aspects of Reeves's, Portrayal of Superman, how he did portray Superman different from Clark Kent really made you that distinction believable. But I saw a video breaking it down where basically Superman's gonna basically confess to her and he sort of as Clark he stands up straight. And, and I and if, of course I had seen it, but seeing it broken down like that and focused is just like God, I mean, he just and of course some of that might be due to obviously direction and Richard Donner. But, I mean, Christopher Reeves really brought it to life and was able to sort of make that transformation really happen. And, I mean, it's still, to this day, one of the greatest character portrayals ever. And we, I think we've mentioned it before, where it was almost poor, almost maybe detrimental to Christopher Reeves' career because that's all people can see him as. But, yeah, I mean, it's such a great movie. It has so much heart. It really gets down to the core of, especially at that point. And, you know, by the, like, the mid-'70s, we'd gone through the Kurt Swan years of Superman in the comics, which were released to this day his golden age Um, not golden age is also a comic book term which dictates you know between the birth of like superhero comics in the late 30s up until I think 45 or 46 is the distinction of the golden age but I mean in in the sense of a golden age for Superman as a character where the Kurt Swan years when it got really kind of almost silly because it was doing these big concepts and these funny concepts but you really saw Superman as this sort of the ideal you know, as an alien, but he's still truly American in, in his idea of, like, what his values that he held up and what we say as our American values held up. And all of those things, Chris Reeves was able to really, really bring to life. And again, to to you know, it's not to discredit Donner, because, you know, I don't know, those of you people who are dire fans have seen the Donner crowd of Superman 2 and the improvement it is over the, the actual theatrical release. But um, it's such a phenomenal, I mean... There are people today, I think, who don't. I think there's a generation of kids who it may be too hokey or it's too dated, and I think that's unfortunate because I think it's still. Oh, it's you know you'll get the comments like oh it's so boring or it doesn't have enough action, and and I I kind of sort of agree with that because again as a kid you know as a young man like Superman from Super Friend the Super Friends and I'd seen Superman. You know, fight giant robots and the different things, and so yes, I can sort of see the argument that it's not as action packed, not as action packed as part two, which is phenomenal. It's just such a great movie, and I know you're a big fan too. I know it's close to your heart as well. What 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 are your feelings on Superman the movie? Superman
0: the movie is literally my first memory of life. Uh, (laughs) I know you think you've talked about this before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Superman the movie uh, that that goes back as far as breathing for me as a memory. (laughs) uh it's <laughs> having eyeballs uh starts with superman i i saw it I, I couldn't have even been a year old uh i i don't know how far back in the release it was because the movie actually came out about two weeks before i was born uh but it makes sense that even a year out it might still be playing the drive-in circuit which is exactly where i saw it yeah. i can still remember seeing it on the screen and uh distinctly remember seeing that costume, but other things left impressions on me as well, Hackman and and actually uh Beatty. And then growing up, of course, I became a bigger and bigger fan and there were sequels and I was obsessed. And you know, I, I had the under and I did it for Halloween. And now I currently have a Superman tattoo. Yep. Which which is a link back to that. First memory so even though i have a version of superman on my arm that comes directly from the comic books from uh the 1940s what it represents to me is actually christopher Reeve. so uh and richard donner and like you said richard donner became one of the first people that i knew as a name as a director but you know it, it taught me not just uh what i enjoy but it it like I said, it kind of had those those little lessons in it. This is how a person is supposed to act. This is what a good guy does. Uh, you know, saving the cat from the tree and then stopping the earthquake after that. So <laughs> it was maybe a high bar to set for a little boy. And, and yeah. I've, I've certainly fallen short of it. There, there was a, a story that I read just since Donner's passing, actually, uh, that, that pertains to Superman, the first one. As I think most people know by now, Gene Hackman has been retired since 2004, ever since Welcome to Mooseport. I, I, <laughs> that will continue to bother me that that was Gene Hackman's last film. Yeah, uh, But the great Gene Hackman, of course, played Lex Luthor, and he he hardly ever says anything these days. But he he did give a statement to The Hollywood Reporter about the passing of Richard Donner. And he said uh, he showed up to shoot that movie. And he had what he thought was the perfect Lex Luthor mustache. And he was very attached to this mustache. If you look at other movies from this period, this was kind of the mustache era of Hackman.
1: Yeah. And,
0: and he showed up to meet Richard Donner, who also had a rather thick mustache. And uh, Donner told him that he'd like him to shave the mustache. And, and Hackman explained that this is what he thinks the real Lex Luthor would look like. And they kind of went back and forth a little bit. And then Donner finally says, tell you what I'll do. If you shave off your mustache, I will shave off my mustache. It's only fair. And so Hackman said, okay, okay, I guess that's fair. And so he shaved his mustache. And then in celebration, he watched as Richard Donner peeled his off of his face. (laughs) 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 This guy knew what he was doing. He researched his actors beforehand. He knew that Hackman was going to be attached to that mustache. And he walked into that first meeting knowing how he was going to deal with this. That Uh,
1: is insane. I've never heard that. That's crazy.
0: I mean, he did similar things with, with Brando, you know, and uh, Marlon Brando, of course, played Superman's father in the the first part of the film and, and little parts throughout both Donner and Christopher Reeve had, have kind of railed on Brando's both his, behavior and his performance uh in superman and that's fully justified <laughs> it's-
1: yeah i actually love his performances jor-el i think it's but i don't know how much of that is because of nostalgia or whatever and i i will be honest and say i haven't seen superman the movie in well over a decade um which is surprising i've seen superman 2 and superman 3 more recently than superman the movie <laughs> It's probably been like 11 years, but I'm an old man. So 11 years is not big of a drop in the bucket, but, um, I don't know. I think, and I, 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 when they used Jer- the Jarrell voiceover in man of steel or we know it was, it, it was in Superman returns. Um, did they also use it? No, because it was stupid ass. Um, yeah. it was Kevin Cost, not Kevin Costner. It was, um, Russell uh, Crowe. R- Crow. Anyways. Um, I, I have a thing against Russell Crowe. Um, but, and it's not that he's a bad guy, which is anyway, I, I just, I, and he's been great. I love to have nice guys, but, uh, yeah, That's all whole, we're not going there. Anyways, but I don't know. I just really like I love his Jorel. I love the voice. I don't know. It's very but again, it's probably all nostalgia. But as far as his him actually in in who he was as a person at that point and the pain in the ass he was on set, fully warranted, of course. Like nobody nobody <laughs> well, could argue otherwise.
0: I mean, I, I love him as Jorel as well, but it's the type of thing like uh with 2020 hindsight. I can look back as much as I love his performance of Jorel and see from a director's perspective, kind of this guy who Comes in and does this slow reading, and at times was like literally like he was reading off of the diaper of the yep. baby that played Superman. That's right. So, that slow delivery that seems so deliberate, it's deliberate because he's reading. And <coughs> I love it though, and because it's Brando, he pulls it off. But yeah, apparently, uh, Brando showed up on the set, and Donner had been warned that Brando likes to find the easiest way out of anything and that he would probably suggest some sort of a shape uh, that should play Jor-El and that he should do it as a voiceover. And so, <laughs> of course, the first day on the set, Marlon Brando comes up and, and says something along the lines of, uh, you know, uh, nobody's ever seen Jor-El and nobody really knows Kryptonians. So maybe, maybe Kryptonians look like a bagel. And, <laughs> and he asks, uh, Donner, what do you think of that? And Donner says, Well, I was told to expect you to say, What if Jarrell looked like a green suitcase? Uh, but you know, if you think that he looks like a bagel, that's fine. Just remember, uh, we have Superman. We know what Superman looks like, and he's from Krypton. So my guess is that he looks like Superman's dad, which shut Brando straight up. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, exactly. And Brando. Yeah. Between Brando and Hackman, probably at his most feisty because he was still, you know, French Connection hot at that time. Was he ever not feisty though? No, and and that's part of why I love him so much. And you know, yeah, exactly. Hackman was born in San Bernardino, so we 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 drank grew up drinking the same water. Um, Exactly, we know we. (laughs) But but Ned Beatty, uh, just to to bring this back around to him for a moment. (laughs) Moment. You know, I remember I, you know, I had the trading cards for Superman, the tops trading cards that came with, you know, a stick of gum. And, uh, you know, they, they all had uh, th- there were scenes from the movie, but they all had like their one kind of studio press photo introduction to the character card. Mm-hmm. And I still remember to this day, the exact image of Ned Beatty just looking stupid. And underneath it, it says bumbling crook Otis and I think it was one of the first things I learned how to read. Bumbling crook Otis. Okay. So I st- I will still sometimes just referring to him in that movie say, "Oh yeah," and then bumbling crook Otis comes in. Like it's just <laughs> but that's his full title. <laughs> but he's so good in it. All this stuff about yeah. uh, are we going to Addis Ababa, Mister Luthor? Yeah. What are they that wearing that- in Addis Ababa? Looks like a bonus. It's
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> nobody else could have done that part. Not, not in the same way.
1: And the thing is, Ned Beatty looked like a Kurt Swan drawing. He looked like a drawing of a character like that, of a bumbling crook. Like he looked cartoonish, especially at the. I mean, I'll have that too. His just simple as costuming and everything. But yeah, I agree. Ah. He was, uh, yeah. yeah, just he just yeah he just looked like a bumbling crook. But uh, but yes, I, I agree. Very. Um, I, he almost made me sad. I, I always felt bad for this, and I think that's un- intentional, Obviously, oh, yeah. I think like. Yeah. yeah, um you know, the Bad Gyps and so-
0: Miss Tessmacher were both abused by Luther throughout oh, yeah. the film. Miss yeah.
1: <laughs> so Tessmacher might have been one of my first early crushes too.
0: You know, uh, she's still around. Um, Valerie perrine and I, I follow her on Twitter. I really don't look at Twitter very often at all, as I'm sure anybody uh, that listens to this can attest to by looking at our Twitter feed. But uh, Valerie Perrine is, is one of the people I follow because I love... She was also in Lenny and, and several things that, that I love from that period. Slaughterhouse-Five. But she uh, she's always putting up pictures of her back in the day, and she put up some nice ones of, of her on Superman somewhat recently uh, after Donner passed. So... Yeah, if you want to find some cool pictures of Miss Tessmacher, go check out her
1: Twitter. I will do that. I'll I'll do that. I will I will certainly do that.
0: <laughs> Before we get too far on Superman, just I, I did want to point out there there are a lot of casting what-ifs throughout Donner's career, and there are certainly a lot of like what-ifs for things that he could have directed. Yeah. There are very few parts that have as many what-ifs as Superman, uh, and the characters in Superman. So I've got a list here. <laughs>
1: if you'll indulge me i i have a list please of of, uh i still remember there was a a wizard magazine which is an old it was really the first it's kind of a like an entertainment weekly just for comic books and i remember wizard magazine in the 90s had a whole article about this very topic so i'm very fast i I haven't read it and thought about it in a long time and I, i do know a few names on the list i don't know if i'll know everyone
0: but go ahead well and just to cover ourselves this is just internet research i don't know Like some of these names may have been floated on the list by wishful thinking uh, on the behalf of fans over the course of the last like 40 some odd years since this movie came out. Uh, But some of these are confirmable. Uh, In fact, some of the weirder ones are confirmable. First off, Sam Peckinpah almost directed the movie. I didn't know that. Yeah. Could have been crazy. Um,
1: Probably not bad. No, I probably, I I wish I lived in a reality. I wish I could at least visit a reality where that was true.
0: Yeah, me too. Uh, And then as far as playing the boy in blue, there was Warren Beatty, John Beck, Charles Bronson, James Kahn, Sam Elliott, Burt Reynolds, Chris Christopherson, Nick Nolte, who apparently got pretty far, Al Pacino, Robert Redford, John Travolta, uh, who, yeah. who tried out before he was even a, a star, Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> that one I'm not sure I believe, but maybe. Uh, Ryan O'Neal, Jeff Bridges, Jan Michael Vincent, David Soul from Starsky & Hutch, Robert Wagner, Christopher Walken, which at least would have kept up with the alien roots. Yeah. Uh, John Voight and uh, Muhammad Ali and Elton John
1: were all considered. What? Wait, the- what? Elton John? I've never heard that. one. That doesn't <laughs> I, even make sense. I,
0: You know, there was a version of this before Donner came on board that was really high camp. That was the where the Salkings, the producers originally wanted to take it, yeah. was following more in the Batman 66 mm-hmm. tradition. There was even a Kojak cameo. Like not a Telly Savalas cameo. In the like original a Kojak. Story. Like Kojak was there with his like uh, lollipop and Bob. said, who loves you baby to, to Superman. Superman. Um, oh, God damn. That's terrible. <laughs> I also have singled out here. Sly Stallone lobbied really hard to get the part and yep. did not get far. because no. Nobody wanted Stallone. Paul Newman was given the choice of Superman, Lex Luthor, or Jor-El. Turned down all three. And then uh, people who were considered for the role of Lex Luthor were George Kennedy, Jack Nicholson, Dustin Hoffman, and Gene Wilder. Gene Wilder might have actually Gene Wilder with the shaved
1: head. Like, I think that could have been incredible.
0: (laughs) That's another "what if" where I wish I could kind of travel to that alternate universe. I want to see the version of the movie
1: directed by Sam Raimi with uh, Gene Wilder in it. Wasn't. And maybe maybe it was a peck and Peckinpah affiliation, but wasn't Clint Eastwood? I thought on
0: one of the Clint, tri- East, lists? Clint Eastwood was on one of the lists. Uh, he was not considered for very long because he just didn't have the right physique for it. Um, that is, was that was also what took Reynolds off the the yeah. list. Uh, although I think Reynolds has a closer tie to it than Eastwood would have.
1: It's so funny we were talking about this recently. I was actually talking about this at a party. Chris Reeves will always be you know Superman to me as far as the live action Superman. You know, like Henry Cavill. Looks like a Superman, you know, that with the costuming helps, but I mean, you know, he's he looks like a physical presence, and, you know. People sort of lobbied complaints that Chris Reeves was too skinny, and of course, you know, you don't like as a Kryptonian, he doesn't need to be a bodybuilder to lift a tank, he's just you know. But the thing is, if you people saw a few years ago, like there a bunch of photos got released of basically Chris Reeves at that time working out for the role of Superman, and he was huge, it's just the costuming sort of dulled down all of his quote-unquote gains, you know, all of the muscle mass he'd put on and all how jacked he really was. And I felt like he was sort of cheated because he actually was in incredible shape. It's just that, you know, Lycra doesn't, you know, it's not like comic books. It doesn't look like, you know, color painted on your body. It's literally... Actually, if anything, Lycra sort of mutes all of your definition. It just sort of, you know, keeps your overall shape or whatever.
0: That color didn't help them very much either. But that Exactly, happened.
1: too. And Exactly. Washed, exactly.
0: That color was the blue that wouldn't wash into the blue screen. They wanted a different, they wanted a darker blue, but you would have just seen a, a floating head. Yeah, exactly. Before uh, I get too far out, I just, I have a couple more casting possibilities, but these are not for Superman. These are kind of fun because they're for for some real side <laughs> characters. Uh, Charlton Heston was considered for jor which I actually on any universe think is better than Marlon Brando. I can um, get down with that. I, I think Brando's the better actor. I think Heston gives the better fucks.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um,
0: <laughs> Ed Asner and Walter Matthau were considered for Perry White. Either of those. Would
1: have been great. Yep. Genius,
0: yes. <laughs> yep. Peter Boyle tried out for Bumbling Crook Otis.
1: Would have also been great, I
0: think, Would have been great, but I, you
1: May- know. Maybe a little been though been- too. I, I think yeah. Beatty's the better one. I think he's more dopey. I think I think he almost would have been more sinister. Maybe <laughs> I, it's because I'm thinking of him in like you know taxi driver. Like he just you know I'm thinking of more seedy. Uh, uh not taxi driver. Um, uh, uh yeah, that hardcore. was him in Taxi Driver. Yes, hardcore but it's well. true. But i think, I think the image of him I'm thinking of is in Hardcore. You yeah. know, he's sort of a good guy in that. Anyways, a bad good guy. Anyways, and, it doesn't matter. And then just to top it
0: off, because this is I, I had no idea about this, and I was kind of floored in a. I'm really torn as to what I would want on this. Christopher Lee was offered Zod. I can see by your eyes you hadn't heard this either.
1: No. In fact, I mean, you know, God. Terrence Stamp, come on. I love Terrence Stamp, Stamp and he's great in it. But Christopher Lee, 6'5", whatever, (laughs) 6'4". If anything, maybe he would have been too tall and too imposing. But, uh, I mean... I love Terrence Stamp, so it's it's not necessarily a loss, but I think his relief could have been pretty incredible, especially in that outfit and that like billy like that seventies see throughy meshy whatever like uh, <laughs> blouse that they wear. Anyways, I don't know, that's incredible. I had never heard that. Or if I had, I'd forgotten it. But man, that's incredible. And
0: uh, you kind of touched on yourself a little bit of what comes next. I. I, I think we're doing, even though we've talked about Superman a lot, not just today, but we've talked about Superman a lot yeah. uh, throughout this our entire time with this podcast. But Richard Donner was really screwed over <laughs> by yeah. Pierre Spengler and the uh, the Salkin. I almost said brothers, but I think it's a father and son. Yeah. Donner was doing Superman 1 and 2 back-to-back, and that was one of the ways they were able to get Brando and Hackman was that they were able to shoot all of their material for 1 and 2 At the same time, Donner really wanted to take this in an epic direction, which he certainly did with the first movie. There are elements of John Ford meets David Lean in (laughs) Superman, the movie. Yeah. And then Richard Lester, who kind of came in to work as a liaison between Donner and the Salkins once things started to sour. Um, He ended up getting the role of of directing part two after Richard Donner had already directed something like 75 to 80% of the movie. And uh, Lester's entire take on it was to make it funny. Uh, Not necessarily camp funny, not Batman 66 funny, but to make it funnier than anything David Lean ever did. I mean, that. (laughs) And it makes sense because. Richard Lester did uh, three Musketeers movies also for the Salkings and got his start with things like hard days night, which is a really funny movie and a subversively Great. funny movie. Yeah. Uh, so I never blame Richard Lester for the nightmare. That is the story of Superman two. I don't think either versions of the film are a nightmare. I think both versions of the film are of equal greatness in, in a lot of ways uh, and equal weaknesses in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. We wouldn't be doing Don or any favors, I think without mentioning, Uh, what went down and uh, the fact that he did direct about 80% of this and and deserved the credit. He actually refused to take the credit.
1: That's right. I I read that. um,
0: Which is why Richard Lester had to go back and shoot more. It wasn't that he was trying to cover Donner's traces or or that there was something wrong with what Donner was filming. It was Directors Guild rules. If you don't direct more than half of the movie, you don't get a director's credit. And the guy who directed more than half of the movie was refusing any credit. So Superman 2 was coming close to being an Alan yeah, Smithy Alan Smithy, film. probably. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. The the fake name. If you ever see a movie with the name Alan Smithy credited as either writer or director, you, you're either in for the best or the worst night of your life. Um, exactly. It's <laughs> that is the name that the guilds give to something where the, the artists have abandoned it. And they were not going to do that with Superman. So it was the smarter thing to do when Lester brought his own style to it. Every scene that you see in either version of Superman 2 that involves Marlon Brando or Gene Hackman, and especially with Hackman in Part 2, that's no small number of scenes. Yeah. Uh, that was all directed by Richard Donner. Hackman refused to come back to work with Lester, and in fact, did not work with Lester for Superman three either. They went and got uh, Robert Vaughn to play kind of a Lex Luthor standard type. Yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> I have a, a soft spot for Superman three as well.
1: I, I look that robot lady oh, still so fucks good me goodness. up. It's it's <laughs> I, I it's I don't know, man it and then the snake transformation scene in dreamscape i all i do is watch horror movies nothing scares me those two sequences in these not horror movies terrify me which is so it's bizarre real quick though too i just wanted to touch upon um first off too i had a great idea when you were talking a podcast called alan smithy presents where oh. he literally just goes through the history of every single alan smithy film uh Probably never get around to it, but if you're listening to this and want a good idea for a pod, if it doesn't maybe it already exists. I, I'm not an expert on what podcasts are already out there, but I think it's a pretty good idea for a podcast anyways. Yeah, that's um, not bad. That's not bad at all. Yeah. Um, there was a few things as a comic book fan, as a super Superman comic book fan, you know, things that he did, like giving Superman all these goofy powers that he doesn't have, like being able to kiss you when you lose your memory or throwing yeah. the shield. That wasn't Donner, though. That was all Lester. That's it. Well, both of those things were lesser I, I was about to say I, I was like, like say like there was a lot of things when you're young that you sort of but also too I mean I'm sure some of that also too might have been uh, studio stuff as well but um yeah yeah but still upset me as a kid as a kid I was very you know like first off where's the toy man and where's Metallo? like where's all of his cool supervillains? why are we getting you know anyways but like You know, I I feel like, you know, people to this, I mean, the last thing I'll say about Superman, the movie, and even Superman 2, less about Superman 3 and Superman 4, but, you know, people will have, there's all these articles now, the greatest superhero movies, you know, blah, 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 and every year it seems like Superman, the movie gets pushed further and further down the list, and maybe it's my age, and maybe it's perspective, but I feel like anybody who can't appreciate the, the fucking majesty and the beauty and the heart of that soup especially the I, I i actually kind of prefer Superman 2 as far as an overall movie because it does sort of you know have, give superman more to do than just catch falling helicopters but it's just it's so fucking good and it's it, it it's like it was the first time where you could believe like the whole tagline you believe a man can fly and it's like it was true and it it I don't know, man, I just in this day and age where superhero movies are the sort of de rigueur like this, it's sort of, you know, the it, most things now. I, I remember a time when a super, superhero movie was in, like incredible news, like they're going to do a fantastic Roger Corman's doing a fantastic horror movie. Oh, boy, I can't wait to now. It's like every other TV show is a superhero property. But the fact that this was the tr- truly the first real superhero movie and they nailed it. In so many ways, in so many important ways, and a lot of that was because of what how Richard Richard Donner wanted to make it believable. He wanted it to, you know, yes, be about this alien with super, uh, uh, unbelievable powers and stuff, but really root him in, in a likable, relatable human being, and, and you know the the characters. and I don't know, I I I I know a lot of it is nostalgia because again, it was an important movie as a kid. I just I think its importance can never be understated. So that's the last thing I want to say about Superman. Okay, I you know.
0: I should be done with it, but I am going to bring back that word verisimilitude because I think it, it applies so directly to Superman. And I think we're we're early enough here in our tribute to Donner now. I, I want to point this out because as people are remembering Donner films as we talk about them, because I think this is one where in a lot of cases, most people will have seen at least the major ones that we talk yeah. about. Uh, you'll notice that he does have a very distinct style Yes, he has some distinct trademark looks. He likes to film things in crowds. He yeah. he does some incredible work with panning shots through like busy rooms that still manage to keep focus on the actors that you're supposed to uh, be keeping focus on. But what I really love about him is his storytelling style, which for for those who don't know, the word verisimilitude... In fact, you know what? Somewhere here, I've, I've got Richard Donner's actual explanation of what the word means. Yes. Okay. So this is a direct quote from Richard Donner. It's a word that refers to being real, not realistic. Yes, there is a difference, but real. It was a constant reminder to ourselves. If we gave into the temptation, we knew there would be to parody Superman. We would only be fooling ourselves. So he put up a sign in the, in the writing office. That said, verisimilitude, so that everyone remembered, you don't have to be realistic. We know that part of this takes place in an alien world. We know part of this involves a man with all these superpowers. But if we create a world around him that's believable, not again, not realistic, believable, believable, then people will believe a man can fly. Uh, I, I mentioned this to me. We'll, we'll come back, I think, uh, a little later. In fact, I know a little later to the movie that Donner made just before Superman. But that's another movie that has an incredible amount of versatility, which is, I think, what makes it strong. So we'll, we'll come back to that and probably touch on a, a few of these, how kind of outlandish some of these plots are, but the way that they're handled in a way that that makes you buy into it for two hours. And that has been something that has influenced me personally as a writer. Uh, even though Donner really didn't do a lot of writing himself. Um, he kind of had Tom Mankiewicz, I think was his, his personal guy. When he felt like a script wasn't working exactly, he'd bring Tom Mankiewicz in because he liked Mankiewicz's voice as his own voice. And I think Mankiewicz understood that versatility and the humor and the humor is really I mean, the humor in Superman, the humor in Lethal Weapon, the humor in all of these things, uh, it's part of what makes that world believable because when something outrageous happens, there's usually someone there to point out that it's outrageous, you know, Superman comes out and there's the guy who tells him he has a bad outfit, you know, like the, that first moment that woo! it's you're pointing out how ridiculous this is, but that's the realistic uh, or that's the believable, believable. reaction from the person when he comes out on the street he flew away like a big blue bird (laughs) like so many people in the movie are saying this is ridiculous men can't fly and uh yeah it'll come up over and over again and it's it really does guide my work is this believable can i create this world and even if i kind of break some of the laws of physics or or certain kinds of personalities or certain kinds of relationships, as long as it's believable, it'll work. And I don't know if there's any other writers or directors listening to this, but that is something that you could take to heart and, and apply to your work as well. It seems so simple, but it's actually pretty perfect. It's made my writing so much better and somehow easier since I started filtering it through that word. <laughs> uh, but anyways, uh, to keep it on Ned Beatty for a moment, uh, I would like to kind of move to uh, the the next thing with Ned Beatty that he did. Oh, real quick. I do want to say uh, Superman 2, <laughs> the Donner cut, is the original Zack Snyder cut. Like, we had to wait decades to get our That's cut. right. So exactly. So anyone that complains about having to wait two years to get the Snyder cut, fuck you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the Donner cut took decades. There was no guarantee it was ever going to be a thing. Donner himself said it was never going to be a thing. Uh, so, yeah, I, I actually consider that one of the most important director's cuts ever released is the Richard Donner cut of Superman 2. Absolutely. Uh, okay, so to keep with the uh, Ned Beatty pathway here, uh, we can kind of take it in any other direction after this, but I want to make sure Ned Beatty gets properly celebrated. Uh, although the next film that he did with Richard Donner is a bit problematic, to, to put it somewhat lightly, and that is The Toy with Richard Pryor. Oh, yeah.
1: (laughs) Which, I I gotta say,
0: that was a movie I I really enjoyed as a kid. I still really enjoy it. And there's a part of me that just has to to put up with the fact that I'll always feel a little weird about how much I love the toy. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It was an HBO great growing up.
1: It was on... Oh, 100%. That's where... Yep, absolutely. It was a staple. Staple of HBO.
0: It was the entry point in my world to the world of Richard Pryor. And... Granted, I started to listen to Richard Pryor albums far too young, but um, but it really did start with with uh, Superman three and the toy being around constantly. And I I, I still think it's it, it's kind of a fun movie. And I for those that don't know the the simple way to put the toy is that a uh, the son of a very rich man in Louisiana comes home from boarding school for two weeks and is allowed to pick up one toy in the department store his father owns, and he picks. A black man as his toy. Specifically, he picks Richard Pryor, who is uh, starting his first day as the night custodian of said department store. But he's actually a, a journalist, and this job was already beneath him. And now he's about to become the toy for this uh, rich white kid. So, yeah, just on the surface of it, very problematic. Very much so.
1: But <laughs> but they they kind of make a they. It's they're, not
0: they're making fun of the racists in this movie. There's yeah. no doubt. Like it its heart is in the right place, its head is way off,
1: though. Yeah. And that Um, happens
0: with some other Donner films, which I'll bring up in a second, too.
1: But, I mean, yeah, I mean, the thing is, they address the fact that it's an offensive concept or that the idea is insane. I mean, Richard Pryor literally vocalizes that, you know, that's, but would that movie get made today? I mean, you know, I was going to say no, but I actually could see somebody like Kevin Hart doing a remake of it and maybe playing, going more in depth on what it is and how it's saying it, but I still thought it was a funny movie. Phenomenal cast. I was very jealous of that kid because it was like on TV around the same time we had the TV show Silver Spoons and and Ricky Schroeder's character, who by the way, Ricky Schroeder is a human being is a piece of shit and fuck Ricky Schroeder to death because he's a scumbag human being. Um, uh, Sorry if you're a fan, Um, but sorry, not not, sorry.
0: I'm not sorry if you're a
1: fan. I was going to say sorry, not sorry. If you're a
0: fan of Ricky Schroeder, I am never coming over for movie night at your house. ever.
1: Exactly. 100%. 100%. Um, You know, Ricky Schroeder's character in Star spoons, you know, he was like, Oh, this kid had his own like you know, train that went around his house. No, the kid from the toy blows Ricky Schroeder and Swiss spoons. Ah the water. That, that kid had every cool thing imaginable, including a human being. But um and, uh, and, but yeah. and Spider-Man pajamas that were like
0: maybe the number one most envious thing on Dude, TV don't... in my childhood.
1: I wanted those Spider-Man BJs. No. You have no idea how much what you're saying (laughs) was resonating with me because I had the exact same thought. They were so much better than normal underoos. Oh, God, I'm so upset. You're 100% right.
0: It upset me that I could never find them in stores. I didn't know if my mom would ever buy them for me or not. But, like, how come I could never find them in stores? And I could almost swear that my cousin had a pair when I was that age. But it must have just been a shirt that I, you know, because I was three. I probably just thought his shirt was, was the, were those PJs. I don't think those PJs were ever commercially available. Uh, but I will say Richard Pryor, the first, uh, the first actor to don the Spider-Man outfit in a Columbia pictures film, uh, (laughs) (laughs) next would be Tobey (laughs) Maguire, but, uh, (laughs) uh, but yeah, it's, it's politics are pretty clear. The movie's politics are pretty clear. It's, it's, it's pointing out the absurdity of this situation. And by the end, it becomes this zany, madcap chase through a party that's being attended by several KKK members. That's right. And, and it, <laughs> it, it, it turns into a lot of, it turns into a big pie fight, basically. And I yeah. think that's that's where the politics become a little muddled. And then in the end, yeah. Jackie Gleason turns out to be a good guy, but is it because he was only placating the KKK for business purposes? Or was it because now he's a reformed racist or like, I don't know who learned the lessons and what, or what exactly the lessons that you, Jackie Gleason was learning.
1: You make a good point. <laughs> I
0: didn't yeah, so, I, so it's just really muddled. And I really don't like as satisfying as it may sound to watch a, uh the, the grand wizard of the KKK fall face first into a bowl of chocolate pudding. There's, there's some problematic (laughs) elements just to uh, the lightness of that situation. So he probably, yeah, it it wouldn't be made today. I don't think in the same way, I think someone could pull it off, but it would not be white. First off, it probably wouldn't be an antebellum South, you know, that's right. There there was literally a, a Dixieland flag hanging behind richard Pryor in the toy store when he's getting paid the money to be the toy that's right um which yeah uh, the balls on this movie really yeah Um, really (laughs) uh, another thing though that that i will point out just uh for any of you fans out there uh i salivated a bit during that whole department store sequence in the first place because they have like there's a whole wall panel of mego toys uh that's right that they stand in front of for quite a while before he gets to the wonder wheel uh, so if you want to go shopping 1982 style, uh, just watch that that scene from the toy and you'll see probably some flashbacks to things that you either wanted or
1: had. For real. And as a toy collector to this day, yes, I, I wish I had a time machine. Uh, I do have to mention, though, because we mentioned Miss Tessbocker, you're um, talking about salivating. Uh, <laughs> Teresa oh. Ganzel was, was another very early crush to the point where I would rewatch. Uh, <laughs> to me... She she's she probably the I, most racist I,
0: character in the movie too
1: <laughs> yeah she's
0: vile she's a vile character um she's very hateable so, she's so good and if you see she used to but be on johnny man. carson all the time and if you yeah uh if you see yes. if you see him actually interview her instead of just cast her in a skit she's clearly not that woman she's not the ditzy no no you know
1: no but she was so but good It's weird because it. she to me like you know the character of harley quinn which is i am not a fan of i i, I don't well, anyways, at least not the the, the way that the fandom is sort of embraced problematic aspects of the Harley Quinn character. But to me, Harley Quinn character worked best in when she was created in the Batman animated series as a sort of gangster's mall. Like, because that's really what she was. And, you know, the Batman, I swear this has a point. Um, but, you know, the Batman animated series takes place in this sort of like pseudo neo noir kind of setting, this ambiguous time frame, but it's definitely very much inspired by. The 40s, and if there's definitely like a sort of an aesthetic of the 40s and early 50s. But to me, for some reason, Teresa Ganzel, when I would see Harley Quinn, I would sort of remind. I think it's the voice that kind of like you know Teresa Ganzel wasn't doing a 40s gangster mall, but the blonde hair, the buxomness, the there's something that she always whenever I would see Harley Quinn, it would remind me of Teresa. It's just this weird association I have. My it's a personal association, but it's always found Me to me, I always thought she would have been like. I mean, obviously, if that character was created 20 years uh after the toy and you know but it i don't know this is a weird association i've always had with her where you know once i started seeing harley quinn i just like man she would have been the perfect actress to play that character i
0: totally um, see it though like the the, her perky cheeks and everything
1: yeah just that like kind of like kind of like ditzy but kind of like dangerous kind of like plus the look anyways but yeah but the, the voice, I think, is
0: a lot to do with it. Yeah. No, I, I definitely remember her. It's been a little while since I've seen the movie. But uh, I will never forget her from from this and from all of her appearances on Johnny Carson. Moving from the toy. I, I'm just going to. I know I'm, I'm guiding a lot of this. I'm going <laughs> to ask No, no guys, guide here. along. I mean, well, just while we're in the general area of the toy, I'm going to look backwards in Donner's career for a second to point out two other problematic movies. (laughs) Uh, Now the toy, I I would still be in favor of of the toy being in in constant release and people being able to make their own opinions about it and and all that. Cause I actually do think that it's a good performance by prior and Gleason, but he did one. It was, it was actually his, his uh, second movie ever. His first was one called X 15, which I'm not even really going to bring up because it was, It was practically a documentary for the Air Force and NASA. And uh, for fans of that sort of thing, it's got a lot of footage, uh, you know, of of the actual X-15 doing its thing up in the atmosphere. Um, It's narrated by... Jimmy Stewart and I'm I'm falling asleep just fucking describing it. Exactly. <laughs> uh,
1: exactly.
0: But but it's out there on YouTube and Mary Tyler Moore's film debut is in that, so I guess that's notable, but uh but anyways, his his second film was was a little bit bigger and uh it's his first attempt at a buddy comedy and it's actually got some very light things in common with with some other stuff he would do uh, later on. It was it's a buddy a buddy action comedy about two nightclub owners who somehow get caught up in a uh, weird sort of taking over the world sort of conspiracy in, in swing in London. And the, uh, (laughs) the two nightclub owners are played by Peter Lawford and Sammy Davis Jr. And the name of the movie is salt and pepper. Wow. I have never a second to let the eye rolls sort of kick in. Um and and before you dare think it's racist, just know that they point out multiple times in the movie that Peter Lawford is actually Pepper and Sammy Davis Jr. is actually salt in the movie. That's their names. Uh it's it's filled with you know, I'm I maybe being a little hard on it. I don't I don't know how you stand with the rat pack. I love the rat pack, I idolize the rat pack, but also there's a lot of there was a special brand of racism that kind of stems from the Rat Pack and the aura of their humor. Um, yeah. and, and usually what it was was an excuse to make the racist joke anyways. But because Sammy Davis Jr. was there, there was somebody to roll their eyes and say, these guys aren't really that bad. Yeah. Um, and and nice. there's a lot of that in this. People making jokes at Sammy Davis Jr.'s expense. And then he he never literally winks at the audience, but he basically winks at the audience every time it happens. And, uh, and then... And then he turns around and he'll make something, some sort of a snide comment that's equally racist about Asian people, you know? And and of course they're in England. So you can imagine uh, there's a, uh, a certain word that's a slur in the United States, but in England has multiple meanings and starts with an F. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, They they have a lot of fun with that word in this movie um, because they're in England and Sammy Davis Jr. keeps on thinking he's being called something he's not. Yeah. I, I hate that that sort of reputation has to precede this kind of work, but I, honestly, I would defend it more if Salt and Pepper was a better movie because it's just kind of dumb. I, I think mostly it's just kind of pointless and, and eh. I mean, if you like Sammy Davis Jr., he does a couple of good songs in it. I I've seen it a few times. I, I like I said, I'm a fan of of the Rat Pack specifically, and both of these guys, Lawford and Sammy Davis Jr., are po- members of the proper Ocean's Eleven Rat Pack. So if you're a fan of that, check it out. Um, you'll probably find something redeemable. I don't hate it, but it's very difficult to recommend just as a culturally sensitive person or as a person trying to be more culturally sensitive, uh, such as myself. Uh, You kind of can't be woke unless you've been asleep for a while. So so I will will confess I've seen that movie a few times. Again, I will defend the toy much harder than I will defend salt and pepper. Uh, One that I will not defend at all, and I promise this is the last one before... This is the last one of the super problematic movie. But this one, I can't even believe it was made then. Okay, uh, James, you know, I used to work at Warehouse Music. And um, I I ordered this movie not knowing what it was. I went off the title and the performer and the director thinking, oh, this might be interesting. But let me me try to just give you a quick premise. An American writer of erotica, played by Charles fucking Bronson, lives in England where he falls in love with a 16-year-old schoolgirl played by Susan George. 16 is the age of consent there, so their relationship still brings legal issues, but uh, the solution for them is to elope to Scotland, where it's legal to get married, and then move to America, where it's legal to be married, if they've already been married somewhere else. Yay! And there they run into the normal and kind of frankly dull issues of him not wanting to do teenage things and not being into rock and roll and her getting bored with them. And then eventually she leaves and now she's thousands of miles away from home. And the name of the movie is Twinkie. And I just really wonder what is Twinkie for uh, <laughs> like who apparently Bronson brought the idea to Donner uh, brought the script to Donner and Donner probably didn't want to turn it down because it was Bronson and a check and a chance to make, I think it was his uh, third movie. He didn't direct again for another several years uh not not a film he he directed some tv but yeah he he didn't direct any films for quite a while after twinkie have you ever seen twinkie
1: no i haven't it's it's it's
0: it's known as like four other things though isn't it (laughs) twinkie is the title that i bought the dvd under and then um it's also been called london affair and Lola. lola even though there's no one named lola i'm sure that was just an exploitation marketing grab for lolita uh, it's not even as interesting as lolita and Bel- lolita is not even not even as interesting as lolita that <laughs> that has become maybe my my least favorite kubrick film on its own just because every version of lolita has failed to point out that there was an introduction to that book uh that's from the perspective of a doctor who is telling you that humbert humbert is so far gone is so sick is so lost in his own psychosis that he is not a reliable witness to the facts yes, that yeah. happen. And then the whole story is then told from Humbert Humbert's perspective, trying to justify what he was doing with Lolita. Yeah. And every single movie has captured the Humbert Humbert perspective and left out the fact that Humbert Humbert is already locked up for doing something rotten. Yeah. Multiple things that are rotten. <laughs> um, And and you don't have the murder story in in Twinkie, but you just don't have much else there either. Bronson is just sparkless. I can imagine that. <laughs> Definitely not a role. Yeah. Like the typical things you'd expect, like rock and roll comes on the, the stereo. Oh, what is this? You know, like that Bronson sort of.
1: <laughs> yeah, just dourness.
0: You don't see what he sees in her. You do not see what she sees in him. I mean, Suzanne George is usually awesome. Uh, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, Straw Dogs. The list goes on and Yeah. Charles Bronson, obviously, I'm a huge fan of, but nothing to really look at in this movie. And I I think that if Donner could have, he probably would have had this movie burned, then had it buried and then had it built over. (laughs) So that it would never escape again. And it is on public domain. And uh, if someone's really interested in kind of seeing a timepiece, it, it is available to watch. I, I usually am more in favor of no matter how offensive a movie like this can get, that it it should be available for people that are a curious or b like historically inclined to to document this stuff so that we can kind of at least keep track of where we've been because this movie uh this movie's condemning the main character's actions even within the movie it's, it's interesting i really don't know who it was speaking to or who it was made for but this wasn't trying to pass off that it was ever a good idea that these two people be together together uh and everybody that was around i mean cops would show up and ask for dad's in uh Bronze's mother starts sobbing immediately the first time he meets her new his her new daughter-in-law like people are reacting appropriately to finding out that these two are a couple within the movie. So I just don't know who they're fighting for or against or very confusing movie. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have watched it if if I hadn't seen it in a catalog working at Warehouse Music as a, a romantic drama starring Charles uh, Charles Bronson, directed by Which Richard right. Donner, called titled Twinkie. I'm like, yeah, yeah. sign me the fuck up. I want to find out what this is about. Absolutely. Uh, and then yeah, got the disc, and I think it was only like two bucks. It's very public domain, where it belongs. Uh, but yeah, not <laughs> not the best two bucks I
1: ever spent. But I my curiosity got the better of me about 20 years ago. Hey man, look, you know. Not everything can be a shining, uh, ex, you know, an example of, of incredible cinema. Um, you know, I feel like, first off, let, don't want to expedite this too much, but I also don't want this to be another two-parter or a four hour podcast. So maybe we will breeze through some of his later works because there's definitely, uh, I mean, we, you can feel free to talk about, you know, what you want to talk about, but um, it's uh we still have so many movies to get to. I do think, well, I'll get there. I'll get to that point. I will make it in a bit. But uh, okay, well, let's talk about his. With it I still will probably consider his best movie. And I know there's some people that would find umbrage with that, but I truly think his best movie as an actual film director, and it's one of my favorite movies. It's such a great movie, and there's so many facets of why it's a great movie. But let's talk about The Omen. Um, yes, I love The Omen. Very like first off, mid '70s as a horror fan. Is like the gift that keeps on giving. If, if you are a new fan, like if you have never discovered or if you're not familiar with that era of filmmaking, first off, the 70s filmmaking is, is in general, just unending wealth of gems. But there was mid 70s for American horror where it was just one work of genius after another. And the omen is right there at the top of that list. Um, you know, and a lot of these movies coming around were like playing off of... You know, there was a newfound spirituality and like a new age movement that was happening. And there was a lot of novels coming out about like devils, the devil and, you know, this kind of, you know, new fear of American, you know, religious. There's a there's a, I, this whole podcast could be about like what America was going through at that time and what really spurned our the American take on the horror movie. But the omen, which is basically essentially just. At this point, it's almost become old hat. Although at the time, it was definitely very new and very original. But it's basically a telling of the Antichrist, um, but from the point of view of the Antichrist as a small child. And then it became, you know, the Omen franchise, which we I, we won't don't need to go into the, all of them, but it did spawn an entire full film franchise that had a beginning, middle, and end. But first off, the Omen, the one thing I will always give Don, or even to some of his later movies, at least the ones I've seen, is he was a great visual director he his his work with his photography and his dps and stuff is always great and he worked with some great dps but the omen looks amazing the soundtrack is fucking incredible you have an older gregory peck who just fucking kills it in every every frame of every second he is on screen gregory peck is just being gregory peck at his most amazing it's one Um, of my
0: favorite peck performances and he's got like a hundred of them
1: yeah exactly 100 percent the whole cast is great. Remick, the, the whole cast is great. There's so many great moments. It's truly creepy. The casting of the young boy and everything they did with him. Cause you know, he's a very sweet looking, you know, very beautiful little boy. Aesthetically there's, you know, he's, you can see angelic with this sort of curly hair and stuff, but you know, he gives these fucking dead eye stares that are truly haunting and terrifying. And the mute, the music in this is so important. All the sound design in this movie is so incredible between this The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby. There's a lot of the movies about the devil and even multiple films about the Antichrist, whatever. And they're all great. And The Omen is just one of those movies I've probably seen The Omen 25, 30 times, and I'm captivated every single time. And that's hard to do, especially with horror, because once you've sort of been experienced to the sort of twists and turns of horror, to be able to revisit it, you there has to be a lot of like meat on that bone. There has to be a lot of reasons to sort of, and it's everything about it works. And I still get creeped out. I, I mean. There's something so truly haunting. Like, it's all for you, Damien. Like, there's just so many incredible aspects of this movie. And, you know, I've heard people recently kind of, honestly, it's not, it's become almost popular to sort of tear down classics like The Exorcist and say The Exorcist is overhyped and blah, blah, blah. It's not that scary.
0: Um, but anytime I the see- The Exorcist is overhyped. I'm, Exorcist look, is a masterpiece, but Exorcist fits in with Brando and Kubrick. No movie is go- is as good
1: as The Exorcist is. <laughs> i would i will argue with you that i think some movies it's not the fault of the movie of the like it's like a whole it's, interesting country it's
0: not the exorcist's fault it's yeah it, it is it really is 40 almost 50 years now of okay. everybody saying the exorcist is still the scariest movie that yeah. by
1: making that statement itself means that the exorcist is yeah. not
0: the scariest movie
1: which which especially in in, in this modern age where like people like yeah, I agree with that, and I think that there's an interesting conversation there, and it's definitely one I would love to explore. as far Most
0: as... most people that find The Exorcist truly terrifying do not understand that the little girl is not the star of The Exorcist or the point of The Exorcist. No. Uh, it's it's all about a, another Damien, Father Damien, and and his his battle Struggle. with his own faith. Yep, and in the end, he wins. He wins by sacrificing, but he wins. In the Omen, spoiler alert. <laughs> The good guy doesn't win in The Omen, nope. um, which I read. I just found this out somewhat recently, this this spin on it anyways. Uh, it's the MPAA's fault that evil wins in The Omen. There was another version where Peck's character is able to get away with killing Damien, uh, wh- who in, in the movie is his own adopted son, and... Obviously it's a sacrifice uh, of an ending. It's a bummer of an ending because a, a child has to be killed in order to stop the uh, destruction of the world and possibly the universe. But that was the idea. And then the MPAA objected to the idea of kind not of a only kid. A, fa- a kid being killed, but having a stepfather, kill a kid or not a stepfather an adopted father. So they had to change it to evil winds in order to make the MPAA happier. And so they shot that scene with, with little Damien turning around and smiling which uh, apparently that shot was achieved by zooming in on the child. The child turns around and then Richard Donner off screen starts going, now don't you laugh. Don't you dare laugh. You better not laugh right now. And he got that little (laughs) smirk Smirk, out of the kid that played Damien. (laughs) And, And that was his ending. And I've even heard that his ending in Superman, where Superman flies past the camera and smiles, is his way of saying that, that, power has shifted and that good is i've never heard that yes i don't know if there's truth to that but considering how self-referential donner is from film to film i mean almost every film has a reference to some other film he did uh not in a multiverse way more in a cameo sort of way yeah uh but it would not surprise me at all that richard donner
1: said you know what let the universe win in Superman. That's right. Let you the know, good guy let's,
0: win. Let's let's give him a smile at the end. I, I mean,
1: and Superman is definitely sort of a, a Christ-like analogy, anyways. Like, if that's again, that's way too heavy to get into this Richard Donner topic. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's 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 definitely a film though. Like, you know that it's funny. I, I was thinking about this recently too. There's like a whole class struggle thing. A lot of like, you know, like in that movie, like they're, you know, wealthy, powerful couple, a lot of these 70s you know, the, the heroes of these 70s horror films where they're intellectuals, college professors, you know, um, you know there's a, a lot of the more wealthy, like, it's just such a weird thing because those, like, these days, like, I don't know if it's like, like, we don't want to, it's just a weird thing I've noticed where, like, modern h- films are more about more common people. And in fact, it's a lot of, like, people are, like, impover- impoverished or going with struggles and then they're dealing with the supernatural thing. But in the 70s, a lot of it were these, like, sort of, like, affluent or successful people you oh, know young organizations like the church yeah so which is a weird thing i've noticed but yeah anyways i definitely think though like everything about the omen war it, in fact it's on my short list of films that like i i personally can't say anything negative about it. i mean there's nothing i would change no casting i would change the film works for me on so many levels it's truly haunting it's truly creepy i think the pacing of it is perfect again i think it might be slower for modern audiences maybe or people who have i don't know i think there's a whole MTV generation thing, the, the the MTV of quick cuts and stuff. And I don't know if I believe that carte blanche for everybody, but I do think like movies like the fast and the furious and that kind of editing has made people hard. Like it's hard to go back and watch uh, older films. But to me, I, you know, it. I think the pace of it moves so perfectly. There's never a dull moment. There's always like tension being built, but the scene when they go to like the car safari and all the animals start going bananas, the monkeys and stuff, that's such a dumb... If I try to explain that scene to somebody, it probably sounds kind of dumb and not scary. But goddamn, that scene gets under my skin every time I see it. I think it's the way Donner directed it from the... I, again, I don't want to turn this whole podcast into... I talk about The Omen. But anyways, it's a. I love yeah. the movie. What, what about you, Devin? Oh, it's it's
0: a masterpiece. I mean, you, you've been to my my first apartment. I, I had an original teaser poster for the The Omen up on my wall. It's... Long been one of my favorite things. Even the the remake I saw on 666 on on June (laughs) 606 when it came out. It's just such a well-rounded movie. You're right. And I wouldn't change any of the casting. And technically on on a day-to-day, just throw something on to enjoy it level. I will put on the omen before the exorcist every single time.
1: I probably would too, honestly. I
0: probably would too. It's got my favorite. uh, Well, to be fair to Suspiria, it's got my second favorite hanging scene. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, but it does have <laughs> my favorite falling off a banister scene, my favorite impaling scene, and my favorite decapitation in cinema history. So when a, when a horror movie has that and it's not a slasher movie, that's right. Uh, that's that's saying something. And I, I also love uh, uh, Donner directed that decapitation scene in a way he actually counted it out. It's one of the most famous decapitation scenes in any movie. Yeah. Uh The great actor, David Warner, flat of glass, flies down, chops off his head, head rises into the air and spins, spins and Donner cut it by he, he covered his eyes as the decapitation happens and then counted out the number of seconds. He thought that most people would feel like they were safe to open their eyes again and made sure that the head spinning in air in slow motion lasted just a little bit longer than that. (laughs) That's so great. So that nobody can hide from that shot. And I've also that is brilliant. (laughs) Uh, David Warner got to take home his own severed head, which he can't even watch the scene. Uh, He's too freaked (laughs) out watching the scene. But he took the uh, severed head home with him. And I think this is true. He lost it in a divorce. His ex-wife took his severed head. Motherfucker! How dare you! You don't take a man's severed head. What's wrong with you? I would almost think that it must have been like an amicable divorce where he was Luffy. jokingly like, "Here, here, honey, take, take my-, my head." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't know anything about David Warner personally. I, I, I would like to actually. <laughs> I would really like to look, look right? up a biography or something because he's, he's just one of those people that uh, is always great. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe it was a bad divorce. I don't know. But The Omen was certainly a great movie. If we want to keep things kind of on the. The inside of, of the fantasy realm. Do you have anything quickly to say about Lady Hawk or any of the
1: So weirdly, this might be the thing I talk about the most outside of maybe one other movie? Well, that's not I didn't expect that. So but because I have feelings about this. So okay. you know how we were talking about vers- ver versimilitude?
0: Yes. Oh, and
1: by so- the way, that was the omen was the movie
0: made before Superman in which he used verisimilitude to yeah. make them... to so brilliantly.
1: Yeah. And the yes. thing is, it works so well in Superman, it works so well in the omen. And for It's one of those rare instances where it can happen where you have a brilliant director, it's just not the right director for a certain property. And I think, first off, it was a movie... First off, I have this weird association because in my early 30s-ish, a while ago, I sort of misremembered that movie having more fantastical elements to it. So actually, I, I think it was, it was either Excalibur or Dragon. It, I watched one fantasy movie thinking it was like a movie I was like oh shit no this isn't the movie i thought it was oh you know it's gotta be lady hawk let me watch lady hawk and i watched lady hawk and i was like no this isn't the movie i remembered either no here's the thing is lady hawk is a very i think it's underappreciated i think first off gabby my wife is uh right there with me where i think i would watch ruther howard do anything anything (laughs) i think he's one of the most infinitely interesting actors especially with the projects that he took, but he, I just find him so interesting. I think he's such an interesting looking dude. And I think he had an interesting career. I think he was just his a, voice.
0: His voice just a is little left
1: of center. Yeah. Right. Something about yeah. his voice. It, it's
0: especially when he does an American accent, his American accent sounds like yes. he learned how to speak English by watching Paul Newman movies. Cause there's a weird sort <laughs> of Paul Newman cadence
1: to it. That's just, well, I was going to say it's, it's so impossible, Even when he's, it's so impossible to place his accent, especially because you know it's you know a lot of people aren't familiar with Scandinavian accent. Yeah, yeah exactly. But um, anyways, he I, he I think he's really cool. I think Michelle Pfeiffer. I think it was only her second second or third movie, but she's I you know she's Michelle Pfeiffer. She's you know en- enigmatic. And she's so interesting. And I I'll be honest. I watched it as a kid because I liked Matthew Broderick. In fact, I I was a big Matthew Broderick fan. A uh, Blues. Like I always thought he was. You know, I feel like he was one of those guys that suffered because he was so. Memorable as a specific character as Ferris Bueller, that because Ferris Bueller is such a brilliantly written character that he really did well with. But he's so every, unlike any other character Broderick played. Exactly, and the exact and but Lexi Blues he's playing the exact opposite character, and in this he's playing. I, he probably honestly was Layak is a very interesting casting. It has a whole interesting story, anyways. But the casting for this movie for Layak was very very interesting. You Know it was going to be, you know, at one point, uh, they wanted Sean Connery at one point, Kurt Russell was going to do it and then he backed out and yeah, thought it was going to be embarrassing. He um, was
0: close to doing it,
1: yeah, it was literally he was ready to film it, but then he saw himself in, I guess, in like all the armor and stuff. And he was like, This looks ridiculous, I have to, to back out of this. But more interesting for the than that is, you know, Broderick's character was Dustin Hot. Ha- uh, there's multiple people, but he plays this French, he's a, supposed to be playing this like French thief, he doesn't have a French act. in fact, he he sounds like Ferris Bueller, and it's really weird. So it's just like he might have been in Loomis' cast, but I remember liking the movie as a kid. And I think my mom might have been a fan. But this is cute. The yeah. accents only had to have
0: verisimilitude, James. That's right, exactly. Um <laughs> he, he wasn't but, French, but
1: he sounded vaguely British, and <laughs> kind and of he's just like, exactly. But. You know, it's a it's a great love story and it looks really nice. When I was a kid, I didn't really think about the soundtrack and it wasn't until I watched it. <laughs> I, I could was thinking like, about the soundtrack later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, And then later it's like, tough? what the fuck is with? And then I'll come to find out it's one of the most it's what it's most well known for is the fucking weird Alan Parsons soundtrack, which I, I think if I rewatched it again and sort of. I might find it to be genius. I might see what Donner saw. Cause Donner, it was the thing Donner was most insistent upon was the fucking soundtrack. So the script though was way more fantastical. Like there was far more to it. There was more like sort of fantasy elements than just the, that curse, which is the whole conceit, which is a great conceit. Like, you know, the, the Duke puts his curse on them cause he loves her. Anybody who fall- sees her falls in love with her, but where she turns in, she only can be a human at night. And during the day she's a hawk and Rikerauer's character, only lives by day and at night he's a wolf and it's this whole thing and yeah the two lovers can never be together never be yet, yet yet yeah. they
0: will never be apart yeah um, and they travel together but they're,
1: they're in but, each other's presence but one's always an animal and it switches off no exactly the other one's a human but so like it's a great premise and it's played well enough but like in the sc- original script there was all these amazing other fantasy elements that i thought could have been really interesting especially at the time in the 80s when fantasy it's a whole again we could talk about fantasy films of the 80s and 70s uh, 80s a lot because there was a lot of great ones they never almost never were very successful but you know i wanted more out of a you know i wanted the conan novels i wanted dnd i wanted big fantasy elements and if anything, it's more of like a fairy tale. And Donner didn't want it to feel like a fairy tale. He didn't want it to be like storybook. He wanted it to be very believable. And I just don't think his approach worked for Lady Hawk. In fact, I think he did it a disservice. Great looking movie. And I think the cast was strong, but I the think... The color I mean,
0: palette of the movie is really interesting. Interesting. But yeah, yeah like I, I, I'm, I'm still of,
1: not sure quite how he achieved it. No. You know, it's a lot of like soft focusy shit, and Like, I think there's a red wash over it. Like, but yeah, it's got a very interesting look to it. But I don't
0: know... I, it, it takes place in the 1300s somewhere, but but somehow, and this is no dig on Alan Parsons because I love Alan Parsons Project, but somehow the Alan Parsons music makes it feel like it's a, it takes place a hundred years earlier than it actually does. Like, <laughs> like, like he can make a period piece from the 1300s feel dated with that music.
1: <laughs> and it, For it's, real. <laughs> well, the thing is, like, listen to the soundtrack on its own. I'm sure it's. I mean it's probably a cool ass soundtrack. Cause I, like I said, I like Alan Parsons project, this sort of like, and it's very eighties, the the few parts, you know, I think if I'm not mistaken, I think you can still probably find the soundtrack. Like you probably still buy that. I think for some reason I remember seeing it on my social media feed, not that long ago within the last year as being available to buy, but it's an interesting movie. It's interesting. It's more interesting about the, those facets of it, like the weird casting things. And then, Donner's insistence about having Alan Parsons do the music because he was listening to it while scouting the the locations. It's a perfect movie. No, but I think it's a really, I think it's a fun movie and I think there's enough to it. This is weird thing where I actually really like Rutger Hauer's look. Um, There's This very important anime. Well, manga, not the anime is not good, but this manga called Berserk by one of the greatest mangaka or manga artists of all time, Kenta Miura he just passed away. But Berserk is considered like the magnum opus of like Monk. I mean, it's just this huge, violent, dark, but brilliant, you know, fantasy series. But I swear to God, at one point Berserk wears this helmet. I swear to God it was it's inspired by Lady Hawk because it's like the exact same helmet he wears. And I don't <laughs> think it's an actual historical helmet, which is just a weird thing. But anyways, it pisses me off that there were so many fantasy movies of this period that pulled back from the fantasy elements and didn't want to embrace those things because they wanted to make it more relatable but again dude turns into a fucking wolf like we buy it like whatever but i just don't think i don't think richard donald wanted to do it i think he was offered it and he, i don't know but do you have feelings about this movie this movie that um, I- it's been a long time since i've really seen it
0: i do remember being impressed by its visuals in a way that is hard to to really explain because it's not i mean it's not mind-blowing no like it's it's not lsd kind of visuals nope. trippy it's, it's just very just, pretty it has just has a really weird color palette that's that's yeah. obviously manufactured it's not they were doing something chemically with the film or something i i don't know uh, and i remember that about it i remember of course broderick is not great per se but fun rugger hauer is is fantastic and actually michelle pfeiffer is fantastic yeah i think that this is this is what to expect from a Richard Donner fantasy film. This is a, a fantasy film with the verisimilitude. He didn't want to go directly to, you know, yeah. toil, toil, you know, uh, yeah. bubble, bubble, toil, and trouble. Sort, trouble. Of, yeah. sort of witches and curses and stuff. He's still, there's mysticism, there's magic in the movie. But he's presenting you a world in which this magic can appear real. To where, like, characters are told this heartbreaking love story between the hawk and the wolf. or or their human incarnations. And then they seem less blown away by how fucking crazy that is and and more interested in what a love story that is, which means that this is a world in which things like this are believable. No, I don't think it's his best work, but I I can't imagine who else would have done. I mean, Ridley Scott, maybe. I don't know who would have done the better job. I I don't think anyone else would have done a better job.
1: I I don't even think, I think Donner, if you asked Donner if he was still alive, with his feelings, he probably... Would admit that it's not his best movie, and that you know I think it's his whole. If you're a fan of fantasy and that stuff, I think it's a different argument, anyways. But I also think like it's it not my have, favorite genre,
0: by the way. And I will, I I think I like this movie because it's actually pretty funny. So I mean, I, and all the i the the huge I think that's what I I don't appreciate the fantasy elements of it at all. That's not my bag. Yeah, it, it is. Yeah, because I love funny
1: script. Yeah, I, I mean, I grew up even before superheroes and comic books, and all these other nerd, nerd endeavors. My first love, because I still remember going to uh the Ukaipa public library and going to this whole like Renaissance well like Knights and Dragons and Sword and Sorcery. They had this whole thing about like fantasy. It was a whole like fantasy festival at this at my local library. And and I'd already liked Knights, Tales of Stories of Like Knights but seeing like a real suit of armor and real swords and people in like costumes and stuff and a whole little section about Tolkien and stuff, like it just it blew my mind and i think i think it was actually very i don't talk about it actually a lot but i was thinking about it earlier today that it was sort of really this one experience was so important to my development as an i guess as a nerd but anyways but again but the, as a fancy fan there's not a lot of great fancy films but uh it's just one of those movies though that i just sort of you know i saw it on probably on hbo or whatever as a kid and I was like, oh, that was pretty fun and stuff. And then probably watched it again in my late teens and be like, man, this, this isn't as fun as I thought it was. And then <laughs> sort of not seeing it. And then sort of just remembering it as a different movie. But I love Rukerhauer. And again, she's, you know, I, I honestly, the my only thing I really remembered was seeing an ad for the movie. You know, it must've been HBO or maybe a different pay channel, but you know, they would show you the, as like the, the thing like coming up next and you'd see the thing for the movie before they played it. Oh yeah. And see, seeing Michelle Pfeiffer's face and just being like, like just like twinkly, like just she was so pretty and it the way it was it looked, it, lo- it was all it was just very, you know, very like pleasant feeling. It looked it looked like it looked pleasant. But um, but yeah, it's not the greatest movie, but it's it's an interesting movie. And I do think it's better than maybe it's gotten its reputation. I just feel like and most of my love comes for one Rucker Howard in it and and how like and I think Rucker Howard's relationship with like that sort of like big brother, little brother, or maybe even father-son relationship they have, although I don't feel like the age difference was too great. In that movie, well, maybe it was, but you know that that's there's a scene where like you know Worker Hauer is basically like just chastising and being very mean to Matthew Broderick, and he's got all these scar Matthew Broderick ends up having he's all these like scratches on his chest. He's like, "What is that from?" And then that that priest guy or whatever was like, "Oh, he he got those from trying to save you when you were a wolf." And I remember being like really touched by that scene, you know, being like, "Oh, like because that's when he sort of realized like, like he's not just some." Annoying ass like kid thief. He actually, you know, I don't know. There's just a really that, and that's Donner's specialty though. And that's really why the one strength I was, is like Donner always knew how to get balance. Like you know the the humor, and then the the he knew how to get you get your heart involved and get your feelings involved and and make it you know make you sort of attached to the characters. Not a perfect movie, but i like I said, I I, it, I will probably end up now that we've talked about it so much. I'm like I probably end up buying. it. Yeah, I'd like to see it again myself
0: actually. Um, so are there any other, uh, let's see, we're, we're in what, 1985
1: territory with... Uh, 83, something like that? 84, 85, maybe 85. Well, yeah, let's talk about the other movie from 1985. The one movie probably that's, again, he's got some amazing, important movies to me, especially in this half of his career. Obviously mentioned superman was a huge huge importance to me the omen was more of something i got into later i didn't that wasn't a film i saw as a kid there my parents weren't uh watching a ton of um you know uh by the time i was renting horror movies as a kid which was still very young it was more of stuff that was contemporary stuff in the early to, to you know mid 80s so i wasn't going too far back so the omen i probably saw the omen on tv and liked it but it wasn't as important to me not nearly as important to my childhood as probably the greatest kids movie ever made the Goonies. Now I will preface this by saying the Goonies has become that movie where it's fandom might have might ruin the movie for some people because you know, the, fa- at least I, there was a period a few years ago where the fandom had just become very obnoxious online. If you're into online culture, you might know what I'm saying where it was just like, you know, anyways, it doesn't matter. But the Goonies, the Goonies was the first movie as a kid that my mom loved that we all that the me and my brothers loved and that we would I Devin I know I when I say this this is going to sound unbelievable but if you you know this to be true especially because you know how my mom was with movies she liked like which is another movie on this list which we will talk about in a second I watched the Goonies not only every day of my life probably for five years and I mean that 100% seriously a day did not go by where we didn't watch the Goonies at least once on weekends we would literally watch it back to back And my mom loved the movie. She thought it was hysterical. She loved Chunk, which, you know, uh, I I know you probably, this has come out recently, but Richard Donner, uh, one of the things to talk about him as a human being, Richard Donner apparently paid. And I I think I actually heard this before it came out posthumously, but Richard Donner paid for Chunk to go to college. One of our friends actually went to college with Chunk, which is a funny story they were, Chunk was their seat, their like college class president or something. I don't know the full story, but one of our friends went to college with the actor who played Chunk. But the Goonies is phenomenal. Everything about it, you know, you had Steven Spielberg producing it. So it had that Spielberg shine. The amazing cast, the soundtrack, the the Cyndi Lauper, amazing soundtrack, which was also had two incredible music videos, also directed by Richard Donner, which also featured uh, Captain Lou Albano. Anyways, it's a, I cannot say how important this movie was to my childhood. First off, you had kids swearing, which just, I mean, I love that. I love that they talked like real little kids and weren't like, Oh you know, It wasn't a fucking, you know, a uh, Brady bunch. It wasn't our gang. It wasn't, like, these were real contemporary mid eighties kids dropping F bombs. And it, it like and it was done really realistically too, because the kids kind of had their
0: own spin on it. First off, yep. I, I found out recently, uh, They all swear strategically at points that are easy for television stations to cut out or drown out their words. Like there's usually a car chase or water or something going on when the kids swear. Um, I thought that was funny. But evidenced by, uh, I I can't remember the actor's real name,
1: uh, the kid that played Data. Oh, yeah. I I, um, I don't know his name off the top of my head either, so don't feel bad.
0: (laughs) Well, his mother didn't want him uh, swearing. And so when his big scene came up, he says, holy S-H-I-T. (laughs) <laughs> which is just the most kid thing in the world, yeah. Like, you know, it, it's more magical because they swear. Because now I'm relating to these kids. I, not Kei Hua Kuan, I mean, which I
1: don't probably butchering <coughs> that, but yeah, gay Kuan as data. But yes, exactly. You're one hundred percent right. Yes, absolutely. And that's the thing is, especially like first off, there's a point in history which is so weird that the sentence is going to come out of my mouth. Cory Corey Feldman was the coolest person on the planet. Like legitimately, like his talent was unbelievable because he had so much charisma on screen. He stole every fucking scene he's in, not just in this, but in multiple movies. But so it, his, it's all within
0: this period. I mean, yes, it really does not, it's 84, 85, 86. It's like yep. this, uh Friday the 13th, 4, and Stand By Me, those three coming out right now, it, it was... By by the time he was hooking up with Corey Haim, it was over.
1: Yeah, but but still, I mean, he like. I, I, I would know, say, I like, know
0: you're a fan of the quarries, and I'm not going to turn down watching License to Drive either. I might. I'm say down, like
1: I might. It turn was down by. I would dream say a little dream. <laughs> I say I was going to say by Dream a Little Dream, which I still think has its own uh, appeal. But but yeah, he was just anyways, This cast, first off, fucking Sean Astin, Josh Brolin, fucking uh, Martha Plimpton, who's phenomenal, never gets enough credit. Fucking Joe Pantoliano, fucking Robert Davi, uh, John Batuza. exactly. It's just, dude. It's it's so good, dude. It's so it's it, it's so good. Pirates, fucking just it, dude. It's it's. I, I there was a mythology. I mean, the people I don't understand. Like when there was like this whole thing. I think it was in Starlog magazine or whatever. They were they were the first to say like, hey, there was this whole octopus scene that was taken out of this movie, and there's a whole like a you know. uh. All these different things that like the movie had its mythology and like for a long time, like I want to see this, you know, crazy octopus scene or whatever. And like um, but yeah, it was
0: literally like I, I don't know if this is true. It probably isn't. There's probably no way this is possible. But growing up, when kids started to learn about like the octopus scene, it started to at least at my school, like it was like one theater had it and the other theater. That's didn't. right. I don't. That's I, right. Th- I think that's bullshit.
1: Like, I think I remember the same thing, though, honestly. Like, <laughs> that same, like, yeah, that rumor or whatever, yeah.
0: But the octopus scene does exist because it has been released as a special feature. Yep. And because it was in, and might still be in, all of the TV versions of the movie where they've had to cut and rearrange other things. Yeah. Um. There's a couple of scenes. There's actually never been a quote-unquote uncut version of Goonies ever released to uh, video or... Uh, whether it be DVD, VHS, any of it, Uh, it's always been the theatrical cut, but there's all these other things that we know exist, things that were filmed, things that have somehow aired on TV, odd familiarity of things that I know aren't in the movie, but I'm sure I've seen. It it really is. It's one of those movies. It's myth. The movie itself is mythical. And I think you're right. I think that's part of why it has uh, such a serious following.
1: Absolutely. I've actually been able to visit both Astoria, Oregon, uh cannon beach like a few like locations where they filmed i've been there and it 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 has that same feeling which is sort of magical because the again even the just the setting is so important i remember as a kid being like i wanted to live there and you know like even though in the movie it's sad like people losing their homes and stuff but like this is weird like is it's like the mountains but it's also the beach it's like And then you just come to find out, oh, it's just, that's what the, you know, the coast of Oregon looks like. That's the coast between Oregon and Washington. Like that's what it looks like. It's gorgeous, but it's also like, I don't know, just very magical feeling that Pacific North area, the Pacific West, but it's just, man, it's just so good. And, uh, you know, spawn, you know, some of these people went on to have pretty fascinating careers. Some of them didn't, but it just, you know, it was a movie. I'm not exaggerating. I had at one point in my life, I'd seen literally hundreds of times. And it never I put on every day I could recite it, recite it verbatim. And like, but it just never got old. It's just the characters are so funny and interesting. And, you know, the bad guys, you know, Ma Ma and her gang, like the bad guys were so hate, like legitimately hateable. But they were also a little sort of sympathetic because they had their own dynamic. You know, it's such a weird fucking movie. There's this this giant mutant named Sloth who wears a Superman shirt which is funny because it's genre. an in-joke. Yes, it was yeah. definitely an in-joke. There's just so much there that's so, such weird choices, like, but it works so perfectly. It, it, it's a movie, I, don't, I mean, you'll never see another film I don't honestly like it. It was this sort of like, there's almost like an adventure serial. It's almost like, it had like almost like an Indiana Jones type adventure serial vibe, but for kid, these swearing kids and it's just fucking bizarre, but I love it to death. And I mean, Well, yeah,
0: even though it's a, uh a- Richard Donner film it also is kind of almost the, the very definition of an Amblin movie yeah there is no Stranger Things without this That's
1: movie
0: 100 percent 100 percent I grew up with it too I actually I mean I, I certainly I've, I've seen it a lot of times I haven't seen it anywhere near as many times as you have my experience with the over and over and over again was uh for a while I I had the um the read-along cassette tape with the storybook I and love that, it. That became a, a regular, like, fall asleep to the Goonies sort of thing in 1985. So I probably heard the story read aloud more than I've seen the movie. No octopus scene in in the read aloud storybook version, by the way. For anyone out there that remembers those, uh, you, you'll know it's time to turn the page.
1: Uh. I love it. I I love like, the He <laughs> Man ones. I had some Disney ones. but the, I
0: had yeah. some Star Trek ones. And, <laughs> ah, those are fun. I had some Superman ones. Yep. Yeah same uh but yeah th- there's really nothing else like goonies even in that time period i i think what might come closest is the monster squad but it's uh, yeah. a few it's, later, it's but... still a
1: different vibe you know yep. like but i do th- i mean again both of those films I- again i think i was just lucky enough to be that magical age to live in that time frame because both of those movies were so important to me you know it's just the perfect time to be a kid man um, where we're making cool ass movies for kids, where kids are like the heroes, but they're not annoying. Like you know, they're you know kind of smart assy kids, but also not annoying smart assy. Like legitimately still likable, just kind of like real kids basically. Anyways, but yes, I I, I mean I think you were dead on. It's literally I've said literally said the same thing that the only real spiritual cousin I could come up with was also so just instead of fighting pirates, they're fighting the universe monsters.
0: So. <laughs> uh, now another one that Donner did in the eighties that. That I think time has been kinder to, but but uh, initially audiences, I don't think, uh, got that into it. At least critics didn't get too into it. And I think it's one that people forget is a Richard Donner
1: movie, and
0: that is Scrooge with Bill Murray.
1: Uh, dude, I cannot. It is such an... Un, well, no, no. Let me actually take that back. In the last few years with online culture, I think it's become now... But dude, that movie is so fucking great and so weird and so weirdly dark, but also hysterical. The cast is great. It's really Bill Murray going full Bill Murray, especially for that period. But, you know, very dark holiday comedy, especially when you consider the other holiday comedies that were coming out, you know, it like in the late 80s. Uh, this one is very like, it's still a comedy. It still has a lot of heart to, in fact, the I swear to God, the ending literally chokes me up every time. Just because it, it's like Bill Murray balances sentimentality with a fucking sense of humor better than I think any, honestly, any actor ever where he could, he's, he's going to take the air out a little, whenever it gets a little, even a little too sentimental, he'll take the air out a little bit. And it's, but it's perfectly because no, it doesn't go into like fucking sappy fucking, but anyways, great movie, phenomenal movie, great cast. I'm a big, big, uh, big uh, Bob, Bobcat fan. And just like, he's so great in his small role in it. Um, you got Buster Poindexter uh, is this the cast is so good, the movie's so good. You yeah, so ro- Robert fucking Mitchum's in that movie, you know. It's <laughs> and, in and a, a, a very un Robert Mitchum role, but still great. He's still,
0: yeah, good. yeah. Uh, apparently, Mitchum wasn't sure he was gonna do it, and so Richard, uh, Richard Donner set Bill Murray loose on him for like an hour and then uh, <laughs> <laughs> turned on the charm. And then Mitchum agreed to do it. My guess is that the charm probably included a, a joint and a lighter. Um <laughs> <laughs> probably Just knowing Robert Mitchum, but, but yeah, it really is. It's become one of my favorite Christmas movies. I have been trying to get my stepdaughter to see it, but it, it's so hard to get her to watch anything. Um, And there's so many Christmas movies that I want her to see. Christmas movies are a genre unto their own. And I have a couple of perennials that I watch every year and Scrooged is one of them. It uh, has been for a very, very long time as an adaptation of the Charles Dickens story of uh, a Christmas carol. It's actually pretty faithful, all things considered. Um, it, it's really kind of the perfect concept of what a reimagining of a of classic literature would be. Um, that that Scrooge would would now be in charge of network television, and uh, <laughs> and that there would be you know Cratchit type character. You know, is th- this uh, woman who played by Alfred Woodard, who yeah, you know, really goes the extra mile to make this asshole happy, and she's got her own family at home that's that's got problems and you know you even get the tiny tim factor in there. We well, get two tiny tims for the price of one really because you get the uh the kind of uh the meaningful tiny tim storyline with the, the little kid that that hasn't spoken I think since his father passed away. Uh but then you also get Mary Lou Retton playing tiny yeah. tim in <laughs> as in, Mary Lou Retton. Yes. <laughs> in this uh TV event based on Christmas Carol. So you, you kind of get two Christmas carols for one. And and uh, Karen Allen is also really great as the, yep. the lost love. And that's something that really... I don't remember Christmas Carol really having a whole lot of real lost love elements to it. And maybe I just need to go back and reread my Dickens. But I, I don't think of any of the other adaptations of Scrooge as being a love story where he's trying to get back the girl that he... Misused along the way, and and has to redeem himself. It actually seems to be a common theme amongst Bill Murray movies from the period too. That and Groundhog Day are both about <laughs> becoming the better person to to win the the, the love of his life. But yeah, I, I just wanted to make sure that uh, I don't think Richard Donner gets like I think even people that give credit to the movie Scrooge as a Christmas movie do not give the credit to. Richard Donner, who, who clearly worked really hard on this and, and created something that is both sentimental and satirical,
1: one hundred percent, one hundred percent agree.
0: Now, I'm I'm kind of thinking there's definitely one from the early '80s that I'd like to touch on at some point. In fact, I'll I might just say now
1: because I don't I doubt you've seen Inside Moves. Uh, no, but I I know Inside Moves. And I know it's fucking Depression on Wheels. Uh, I mean, I know it just. It does one. It doesn't look like a Richard Donner movie, but I I still remember when I first came across it, uh, thinking like it just looked like the least fun. Mo- I mean the whole it the whole point is it's supposed to be like a dark comedy about, but it just looks so dep- it just looks such like such a bummer. I was like, there's no way I'm watching this. But yeah, I, I do know of it. I had never seen
0: it. I I watched it uh, recently for this specifically
1: because I felt like I needed
0: to see his his take on a on an actual. Full-scale drama. Donner was really—it's he—he was a man who wore many hats, a man of many styles, and he did a lot of genres, and some of them only once. And character study slash melodrama. Uh, his, his contribution to that was this movie, Inside Moves. And I'm so glad I saw it, dude. It, I, I do highly recommend this. It's on HBO Max, I believe. It sounds depressing as hell, and there are moments, yeah, where where you're not. <laughs> feeling too good but for the most part it's actually a pretty uplifting movie by the end yeah um, i think a lot of movies from that era especially from that era uh this being 1980 would have deliberately taken it to like some really downer areas and i don't think this movie ever really quite goes there i think the intent of the movie is to fill you up more with like uplifting human spirit you know yes exactly it's about recovery. It's about coping, and it's it's about for anyone that doesn't know it, it's about disabilities. It's about a guy who, via failed suicide attempt, ends up doing some real serious damage to his body. He's not paralyzed, but John Savage is playing the lead, and that there's another. It's an actor who really never got his due. Um, I, I wondered actually last night while I was looking at John Savage in this movie and thinking like, why wasn't he bigger? I mean, he's in so many Hair and the Deer Hunter and He's in so many big movies. He must have been some kind of a jerk or something. And so I looked him up on IMDb or, you know, to see if I could find any stories about why he wasn't bigger than he was. And like for this huge chunk of the late 80s and early 90s, he f- went to South Africa and helped Nelson Mandela personally in ending apartheid. So I'm like, okay, I guess that's, that's <laughs> a good reason to not be you know, making exactly. movies in 1989. So yeah, John Savage, cool guy, uh, just discovered. uh but he's he's great in this and so is david morse in his first film and and he also even got back uh uh, what's his name harold russell who was the world war ii vet with the two hooks that won an academy award for the best years of our lives almost 40 years later um (laughs) after he won the academy award for that movie Donner talked him into being in this movie because because it was it was meant to be uplifting for people with disabilities and he agreed to do it. Man, he's he's hysterical. He's one of the guys they know in the bar and he's yeah,
1: everybody. He, if in you the watch bar, the trailer, he's he's the point of com. He's like yeah, he's one of always is the funny one liners.
0: He's one of them. They all actually have some big moments yeah. and and yes, it's 1980. So aside from Harold Russell you're going to see a lot of uh, able-bodied actors playing disa- disabled characters in this, uh, but that was the time and it, it doesn't yeah. diminish the message.
1: Uh, it's, it's yeah, it's really, it's a feel good movie that starts off with a suicide. One of the, fu- the funniest lines, cause you know, I remember, I think it was like, I forget which website, but the re- only reason I knew it before I look, you know, I rewatched the trailer before this. Uh, it was literally the only bit of uh Research I did before this just because I was like, it was one of like, like his early, like Twinkie and all the earlier stuff. I was like, I need salt and pepper. I was like, when you brought my mind, like, I don't, I have no idea what this is, or at least I've never seen it, whatever. But, anyways, but so I remember like some website had it like 20 most underappreciated dark comedies or whatever. It was on some list, and I remember seeing it and then I'm looking up and being like, it's fucked up. But so I rewatched the trailer just to sort of like I was like, oh yeah, I remember that. I remember w- booking this up before. But the one line from the trailer, because again, I was like, man, this is depression on wheels. Just but again, that knowing you obviously that's the whole point is like a bunch of you know people who are broke and still you know find the humor and friendship, of them. Anyway, all of those cliche kind of cliche Hollywood message type thing. But it's like, man, you. He's like, man, you really fucked up the order. You're supposed to. You're supposed to get crippled and then try to kill yourself. Yeah. I remember being like, that is a very funny, but very dark line. So, uh but yeah, but, but very interesting. Um, I maybe mean, I will watch. I mean, the thing is like, it was like, there was a lot of directors in the late seventies or throughout the seventies who were like taking a dark subject and trying to make a comedy of it and stuff. And there's some great movies there. And I, 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 uh, I, sorry, I told you off podcast, but I, I recently had a brain injury. <laughs> within the last few days I had a very severe brain injury so I can't recall any of them right now but I know like I I I mean I know that I've seen a lot of films that took a sort of a dark premise and you know uh you know did something fun or interesting or you know you know managed to eke out both a a humorous movie and a feel-good movie out of dark subjects so and I've enjoyed films like that in the past but I just again revisiting the trailer I was like man this looks good and the whole yeah. thing like with like you know, uh, Savage's character is like, you know, there's like a love triangle thing, and I was just like, man, they're going for going all out and every trying to eke out every possible ounce of, uh, you know, drama in this. But oh, but, it's it's cheesy as hell, but it's got it's got verisimilitude. You totally believe it
0: within the context of this particular story, you believe everything he's laying out for you you will never be in the mood for this movie. So I'm going to tell people just force yourself to watch inside moves on HBO max because uh, you will be rewarded. Don't wait until you're in the mood to watch an they early eighties, dark comedy about uh, recovery from disabilities. Yeah. Um, and it, were there any movies from uh Donner in
1: the nineties that you wanted to talk about? They all go back to one movie from the late eighties. I want to talk about, I will say I'm going to be very upfront to me and, for me personally, Scrooge, and then the movie he made right after Scrooge. Basically, the post 1989 for me specifically, he is a very hard downturn where, you know, the last movies of his, although one his very last movie. I didn't, I watched, did I watch it on a plane? I where I watched it. Was I at a party? I don't even know where I watched it. It was a, someplace where I was sort of distracted, but I liked it well enough. but was 16 blocks? 16 blocks, yeah. Yeah, I, thought I liked it too. It wasn't phenomenal, but it was, I mean, great cast and an interesting, you know, sort of thrillery kind of thing. But we've talked about all of the other big ones. Let's talk about the, his, the, the sort of second franchise he sort of created and the one that he directed throughout consistently. Let's talk about Lethal Weapon. All right, now, let's get into Lethal Weapon. Let's do it. So when I talked about how... You know, growing up, there was my mom, there was Goonies Tremors, which I think I've brought up on this podcast before. But the one movie my mom watched every single day for much longer than the three or four year period I mentioned about Goonies, and that's Lethal Weapon, which is probably my mom's favorite movie of all time. She was a giant Mel uh, Gibson fan. We will not talk about Mel Gibson's too much on this, but sort of this, like the quintessential body cop movie. I mean, there were buddy cop movies before it, but it really sort of hammered home all of the cliches oh, 100%. um 100 this is when like everybody was a buddy cop after this yeah after this it literally it went everybody tried to rip this one. and again this
0: and die hard are probably yes, the most yes. important action movies of our lifetime and they came out in like these two years so 87 and 89 yeah yep 88, absolutely 88, 87
1: 88 absolutely and as much as i will give donner credit for the success of lethal weapon I think equal credit goes to Shane Black. I think it's Shane's as great as the directing is, as great as the acting is. I think you take a like you can take all those different elements with a lesser script and it just becomes forgettable. Shane Black's script was so exactly what Shane Black was so good at, which is balancing legitimate action, you know, sort of these high adrenaline films with flawed, interesting characters, very like funny dialogue, very zippy, quick fast-paced dialogue balancing act between being tongue-in-cheek and being very not tongue-in-cheek which is a almost an impossible task it's funny somebody pointed out recently that uh danny Glover was only 42 or 43 when they filmed that so i'm right. older than danny Glover was when he made when he said i'm getting too old for this shit which is very <laughs> depressing and like but well he was I mean, playing 50 but yeah, he was playing. It's right. He was playing what, older, but again, he, what but, makes
0: me feel old is that Mel Gibson was thirty
1: when he made. That's the right, <laughs> exactly. That makes me feel ancient. Yes. <laughs> as much as I do love the first one, and the first one is is hands down the "quote unquote" best of the four. I brought this up in a different podcast, but I actually I hate I I I'm going to put the blame on Richard Donner because he directed it. But I was obsessed. I the amount of hours spent infuriated about the concept of diplomatic immunity and how <laughs> fucking unfair it was and how it just, the concept infuriated me as a kid and how, like, just, I thought it was this big problem in the world. <laughs> with people with it just getting diplomatic immunity, and killing people and just not being able to get it, Anyways. But I man, knew
0: it was going to come. My, my friend, Ryan Peary, uh, if you're out there, Ryan, that was one of the things that he mentioned when, uh, I really, I I sent him the RIP Richard Donner. He's he's one of my close friends that I I always let him know when I hear something and vice versa. And uh, yeah, I I did RIP Donner, and
1: he says, The man who introduced the world to diplomatic community is true. Again, I'm glad I'm not alone because, yeah, it it really upset me. Um, Let's talk about the fact that the uh, the, first off, you know, there's it's you have this action movie, babe, you have this hero of an action franchise and usually they're you're thinking Clint Eastwood or Charles Bronson these sort of like these pillars of not only masculinity but of like the strong sense of justice and right and wrong and just like exactly. men of virtual fucking here you have a guy who's dealing with mental health issues and fucking suicide like uh, you know like suicide like depression and like and he's also there's just so many elements to the characters and Riggs and Murtaugh while being very cartoonish by the end of the series were very very interesting characters in the, in the original film it's a movie that you know has become synonymous with just like classic action films but i also think it's a little bit of a disservice because i think it's it's a little bit more than that i think yes the other films become sort of just very cliche action films but which isn't a bad. i love action i do another podcast you know dedicated to to i
0: I enjoy all of the lethal weapons but the the sequels are by nature the very definition of diminishing returns
1: on a sequel absolutely Absolutely, I agree with you. But can we also first off, real quick, first off, Tom Atkins is in this movie, small God. role, but I mean, any any time uh, Tom Atkins is in a movie, it needs to be it needs to be brought up. It's uh, the reason why I, I always think of Tom Atkins when I think of eggnog. That's right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I love it, but I always, I, it's always weird how people forget that the villain in this movie was Gary fucking Busey. This seems to always be forgotten. That. Like how, how does that get forgotten
0: because he's stuff. so good too he's so creepy he it is just so intense. that was my idea of what mercs were for a long time too it's like exactly like someone as crazy as gary busey and see and and donner was smart enough to cast him because he he had to get somebody who we felt could be intimidating to mel gibson and gary busey pre-accident you know uh i don't know if it was post coke yet or not yeah, exactly. I, I still don't know if we're post-Coke yet. Um, <laughs> exactly. Busey's mind will always be a mystery to me, but I, I feel comforted that it will always be a mystery to Gary Busey as well. Busey, exactly. And exactly. Uh, but yeah, the, the fact that, <laughs> that Gary Busey would be the individual that could scare Mel Gibson, just, I love that.
1: Yeah, man, it's such a, it, it's, you know, I wouldn't, I'm not gonna say it's a perfect movie, but it's definitely one of the all-time best action films. Definitely the best buddy cop And there's some great buddy cop movies, but it's perfect. I mean it's a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece of casting too. Because on first of all, I always think Danny Glover so underrated. Predator 2, which also has Gary Busey. Busey. Yeah, also Gary Busey is kind of a villain, is you know, um, an antagonist, anyways. But yeah, like I always thought Danny Glover is so great, but that that dynamic of Mel Gibson as Martin Riggs and Danny Glover as Roger Marta. That's where the magic is really happening because they're such different characters at different points in their life. They're both great at what they do. They're both legitimately like, I could see both these guys as like these hardboiled cops, but they're also both really funny and have a great sense of humor. Danny Glover definitely has his own sort of this dry, exasperated sense of humor, um, which does by the end of the series become more and more cartoonish, but so does Mel Gibson. Uh, But yeah, it's great. There's a scene in it though, which Which is, there's a lot, okay, look, every family is different, but it's such a specific thing to have, your dad is taking a bath, balls and cock out in the bath. there's It's not even like, it's a bubble bath, he's just balls and cock out, not that you see Danny Glover's balls and cock, but in the movie, he's just in the tub, balls and cock out, and here come his kids, and I'm like, what? And then later on, he's on the shitter. It would
0: would ruin my fucking birthday if my family (laughs) did that. That's do what they're, a... they're, they're bringing them in a cake, and I—I I swear to God, I would be like, "Get the fuck out of here!" Exactly. No, I'm not eating any of your cake. Exactly. Like, you just leave problems. me alone the rest of the goddamn day now.
1: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Making a fucking I'm... bath. Exactly, dude. It's just so weird. It's such a weird choice. But again, I—you I, uh, know—I think that. They... I think I read an article once about like how they, that whole franchise just really just was almost like it was made out to fucking embarrass that character. Like, <laughs> like how every, every film is this really embarrassing scene for poor uh, Danny Glover, or Roger Moore's the character, but, anyways, but yeah, but It great. doesn't
0: always come from, uh, from the Riggs character though. It off, I mean, no. his no, daughter no, does not does a necessarily. Condom
1: commercial in the That's second right. one. And yeah, yeah.
0: Exactly. I always thought it was cool. Um, as the franchise went on Glover's or Murtoch's family is always played by the same people like this they weren't pulling a they could have very easily have kept the kids the same age exactly by just recycling actors like they did in in the vacation series for example but they really they showed the Murtoch family growing up and older and, and that was kind of a cool thing that I'm sure Donner insisted on I'm sure the studio was was not entirely in favor of
1: but I mean, it makes sense, though, because you're the character as the film's born. They are getting older and like their characters are developing and stuff. And that, in fact, that's actually where a lot of the interesting things, those subplots happen, especially by, you know, eventually, you know, she's dating Chris Rock's character, who's like a cop. And so, I mean, that's really And I, I mean, also, it's weird, like his wife is played by Darling Singer, the amazing singer. Uh, Darlene Love, who is one of my favorite, has written multiple amazing Christmas songs, but the amazing singer Darlene Love, who's also uh, plays his wife, uh, plays Roger Murtaugh's wife. Now, you know, obviously, I really like this the sequel of this, the direct sequel. I will argue that as a kid, I like Joe Pesci. Uh, Joe Pesci's in- inclusion. Uh, I don't know if I feel the same way as an adult. I don't think I. I really appreciate his character. <laughs> And the second one, it's fine. I think going throughout the films, it's like a little like uh, this has become he's he's more annoying than he is funny. But what's weird is so I I was just having this conversation maybe three or four days ago that I don't think Renee Russo gets enough credit. I think she's such a great actress. And I don't know if you're as big of a fan of the movie Nightcrawler as I am, but it's one of my favorite movies of the last 20. It might be my single favorite I love the movie Nightcrawler. Renee Russo's in it and she's, you know, plays an older woman in it, this older TV, uh, this old, this TV news, um, uh, not producer, but like showrunner. I, I forget what the term, but anyways, she's great in it. But I remember, being like, dude, I, she was such a, to put her up against, first of all, to give a love interest to Riggs, to Mel Gibson that can kind of sort of stand up to him and be her own badass character and, and really sort of kind of give as good as she can take kind of thing. I'm like, I just thought she was such a great character and I, I it's she's we, weirdly Renee Russo's character in my brain is one of those people talk about strong women roles and I'm not just kidding I'm not kidding when I say the very first two that always come into my mind are Ellen Ripley because she's the fucking goat greatest of all time uh, not just female heroine just Ellen Ripley is the baddest motherfucker in action film history. But then it, after her is fucking is uh, Renee Russo's character. I just think she was such a great character. And Renee Russo played her so well. And she was so like, she's just a really great female action character. And I don't feel like she ever gets enough credit. And I, I really like I thought she was a great addition to the story. And then their progression. But anyways, that's that's a weird tangent. But I said to give Renee Russo some love.
0: Absolutely obviously uh probably worth saying that we're probably never going to get lethal weapon five now no um this is probably a good thing i do yeah i was gonna say i don't like the circumstances but it had been announced richard donner was interested in doing a lethal weapon five and and uh glover and gibson were of course both on board uh, so that was a thing that was happening and will probably not happen now. I, I can tell you, honestly, if Richard Donner had done it, I would have seen the movie. If anybody else does it, I'm going to completely skip it because um, yeah. there just doesn't seem to be a point to it. Uh, it kind of loses all verisimilitude if <laughs> if, mm-hmm. if you're going to have these guys in their 80s trying to kick ass. People give Harrison Ford shit for doing Indiana Jones 5, but those were always fantasy movies. The, this, Yeah, you you would lose something in, in the trans.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I will say this though, if Shane Black were to write it and direct it, I would watch. And that and I, I I try not to support Mel Gibson films these days. me neither, but I would have if it had been a Donner film. Yeah. and I don't, you know,
0: i I have mad respect for Shane Black. He's written some of the greatest screenplays ever, obviously. Me, including Monster Squad, to, to bring that back into the conversation again. Exactly. Uh, I do not think that I would go see Shane Black's Lethal Weapon 5. I, I think I would skip that. I would think that that movie would be beneath everybody involved. If it was Donner, I'd be curious. I, I wouldn't be hopeful, but I'd be curious. Yeah. Anybody
1: else, it just seems like a cash grab. Well, I will say, though, and I think this is perfectly, considering the, some of the films Donner made at the later end of his his actual productive career where he's actually making films. Uh, I don't know if I'd be so helpful,
0: but uh, look, I am i I don't think he made it. Well, there's the timeline movie that I never even watched, which apparently the studio butchered not once, not twice, but thrice uh, before Donner could release it. So I I just didn't see that one, but I don't think he made a bad one other than that uh, in this phase of his career. Which ones are you?
1: Um, So uh, assassins is not a good movie. It's I uh, see. I'm surprised. I thought you would have enjoyed Assassins. I, maybe I need to rewatch it. I didn't. I watched it once when it was brand new, or you know, like you know what? I might have watched it with Casey. Did I watch it with Casey? I don't know. I, at this point in my life, in the in the mid '90s, I was I was hanging out with Casey over at Casey's house a lot. Uh This would have been senior year of my high school. So, uh but yeah, I remember watching it once and being like, "Nah, man." And I like the cat. The cat, you know, cast is interesting. Um, but yeah, nope, didn't. Uh, I know my mom liked Maverick, didn't. Didn't really care for it. See, um, I love Maverick. Uh,
0: that's one where.
1: I, I had a feeling you might have liked Maverick. Um, Conspiracy Theory did, found it very annoying. Um, I knew what they were going for. Um, that's, I, I haven't seen it Mel. since.
0: He Well, he did. Um, you know, he, he did multiple movies. He did, uh, he did six movies with Mel Gibson. Yeah. But it's also worth putting into perspective four of those were lethal weapons. Yeah. But yes, the, the two men did have like a genuine affection for one another. And like Gibson was Donner's choice for Batman when he was up for the 89 Batman, things like that.
1: I do have to say this, though, as I'm staring at a list of his like his sort of breakdown of his filmography. Uh, he did. Donner did also have a very impressive television directing career. But I do. He did direct the Ventriloquist Dummy episode of uh, Tales from the Crypt, which I did really like. So and I, he also
0: directed The Twilight Zone with Shatner, the 20,000
1: Ter- wait did he yeah
0: the uh terror at- the gremlin the one with the gremlin yes yeah that was I richard didn't... donner yeah that was didn't... uh shatner even responded to donner's death saying uh he, he barely remembered oh. doing it except for that he had a positive experience
1: oh but, see i didn't i didn't when i was looking at it i didn't tw- nightmare twenty thousand feet see yes that's, it, that's fucking it. fantastic yeah anyway I, I mean i I love every its own is one of my all-time favorites. So the fact that he he directed six episodes is fucking great anyways. But anyways, but yeah. So again, to go back to his later career, I, I will probably, of any of them, I might revisit. Maybe I will revisit Assassins too. Um, I just Definitely remember. Definitely revisit Assassins because I've seen it somewhat recently.
0: And really? no nobody, nobody's robbed of an Oscar for it. Let's get that out there right now. But in terms, I think time has been kind to it. I think in terms of uh just kind of being a fun don't take it so seriously action movie. It's as far as an assassin movie, it's certainly better than anything that Jason Statham's ever done. Or, uh, you know, it's better than the remake of the mechanic. It's got a very similar plot to the original Charles Bronson.
1: Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I would say it's on par in terms of quality to the Charles Bronson mechanic. Now timeline. I, I don't, do you, have you watched it? Do you know anything about it? Or anything you said you did? I
0: actually fully intended to watch timeline today um, I was a little disheartened reading about the studio involvement. I always kind of knew that was a thing. It's unfortunate. It's probably one of the things that kept Donner from working much beyond that. Um,
1: uh, yeah, I remember. But the,
0: yeah, the studio kept on pushing back the release date because they were unhappy with Donner's cut. And then they were unhappy with his second cut. And then they were like unhappy with his third cut. And eventually he ended up cutting over 20 minutes, including a prologue that apparently sets up the whole movie. So nobody liked this movie, not even the people that made it. and uh so yeah it's probably better to just skip over it but i did want to watch it today and instead i thought before i turned that on i said i just kind of want to take a look at this tv movie he did uh called sarah t um sarah t uh teenage alcoholic is that what it's yeah
1: (laughs) i believe so yes
0: uh the, the actual title is so much cooler. Let me see. Yeah, Sarah T. Portrait of a Teenage Alcoholic, uh, which is a TV movie about Linda Blair at 15 years old being a uh, completely insane, uh, uh, offers shit alcoholic, and her her hookup in high school is uh, is Mark Hamill, and her dad is played <laughs> by Larry Hagman. And it's just all sorts of movie of the week deliciousness, and I got hooked into that. And I decided I do not want to watch the bad Richard Donner movie. I would rather watch this, while well, granted, <laughs> depressing teenage alcoholism story. But Linda Blair is actually really good. Larry Hagman's actually really good. Mark Hamill's Mark Hamill. Uh, his, his better performances were a couple of years away, yeah. uh, but that's not his fault. His character really doesn't have much to do outside of I, start I will giving say her Corbett's booze and then start telling her she has a problem.
1: That was his function. Very <laughs> much TV of the week boyfriend role. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I just I, funny though. I was thinking of they day, like I remember like really liking the seventies-ness of Corvette summer. Wasn't there, was there also a Mark Hamill pinball movie? Am I crazy? Or is that a, portion of the subplot of corvette I, I remember mark hamill in a pinball movie that sounds so familiar but is it i guess i could google it but is it is there a movie like pinball madness or something like that something like i mean yes that's what I'm, i think that's exactly maybe the we might be on here or something um i guess i could just literally
0: you're bringing up. up fresh you know freshly dug up memories here i don't know if i, I don't trust my own memory on this no,
1: no, 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 no. Uh, i don't think maybe no, oh No, no. There's a pinball wizard episode of his pop culture quest, which is a TV cool little TV series he did. Yeah, I like that show. But either way, man, the one thing I got, which is we're so off topic at the end of this podcast, but I do have to say, it's really unfortunate because Mark Hamill was so he was a very handsome kid, like he was a very good looking kid, and then that fucking motorcycle accident, I feel like really fucked him. Like I don't, I think if he had been post Star Wars, I think he probably would have had a better career if he didn't look if it like the accident hadn't aged him so much. Because I think even by end of Return of the Jedi, he was only like 27, 26 or twenty-seven, if I'm not mistaken. He was still a very yeah. young man. He just, you know, but but anyways, it's very unfortunate. But when we, you see young younger with his big blue eyes and his you know, his toe head, and he's just a very good looking kid. But anyways. Oh, yeah. he's, he's
0: beautiful yeah. in Sarah yeah. T, portrait of an alcoholic. And, exactly. Uh, <laughs> and I was gonna point out Linda Blair as your as your uh all time girlfriend, but not in this movie. You, you no, she you was have very... To be a, it would have to be a Twinkie story in this movie. Exactly. I mean, she's, she's a little girl with braces, but man, she actually, she tore my heart out a little bit. Uh, for a
1: TV movie, she, um the thing is, man, I find it unfair. I think it's because of the work she did post The Exorcist, but you know, she got for a long time like, oh, well, you know, she's not a really good actress, and it's like that's not very fair. I mean, she was a very capable actress. I just don't think the material that she was offered or whatever. I, I think one hand, she got. I, I do think. I, I do think maybe her performance in The Heretic Exorcist to the Heretic is. But but how do you I say no to the sequel to The Exorcist? I know exactly. Player? But I will say, and I can say this because she was 18 at the time, that is really where I was like, damn, she was very cute. Um, There was something about the proportions of of linda, uh, linda blair's face that i find very 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 cute anyways but she was 18 so i could say that. and 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 again my crush started when it was also age appropriate so yes, let me just say that but uh, and also she's much older than me so it's fine but yeah it's funny because when you sent before we recorded this you sent that and i didn't realize that the link i thought the link you sent me was to an article and i was like oh it's literally the whole movie i was like i'm actually going to watch it i wasn't able to do it before we recorded but i'm just just because i want to see it just because that whole you know uh Mark Hamill, Linda Blair, TV movie, directed by Richard Donner, and it's like sort of a like one of those after school special type of films. I'm like, I I'm totally up my alley. I'm going to definitely watch this. I haven't watched it yet, but I will.
0: And you know what? Uh, it is on YouTube for anyone that wants to look it up. In a surprisingly great looking print. It must be off of a DVD or something. Yeah, going I was gonna say, exactly. It's ripped right off of the disc because yeah, it looks because clean as hell. Yeah, for, for a 1975 TV movie, this thing uh, looks like it was remastered a couple of years ago. And, uh, and, you know, there's one that we haven't mentioned yet. I don't know if you've seen it, but it actually does link back into the alcoholism thing. And I, I am going to name drop it real quick, uh, not to end this on too de- depressing of a note, because it really is maybe with all of the other stuff we've mentioned, this might be Donner's most depressing film. And that was Radio Flyer.
1: Oh, thank you. I meant to say it. I have a very weird specific story about this. I remember my mom and dad, like we rented it and my mom and dad started watching it. And I remember they literally both turned it they were just sort of, I don't know if it was because it was too depressing. At the time, There's a lot of those sort of like, the, the the formula of like looking back on your childhood, like, you know, there's like an element of that, like even like stand by me, but it's like, but yeah, it's very depressing. There's abuse to things. I, I remember as a kid sort of drawing or being doing something else, but I remember my parents watching it and being kind of like, I think this is enough of this. And as a, I don't know if it was, be- I honestly don't remember, like in my memory, I don't know if it was because they thought it was bad or if they were just like, this is too depressing. And why are we watching this? It's but that's
0: extremely my- dark. And it, apparently Donner himself like cleaned it up because he, he loves kids. Yeah. It, it is. It's a story about two kids growing up with an alcoholic stepfather uh, and their mother played by Lorraine Bracho doing a great job. Uh, but she she's getting beat as well, and they're, the two kids are bonding and, and trying to figure out a way to escape from this, uh, this creepy stepdad who they call the king, uh, which just adds to the creepiness. And he's played by Adam Baldwin, and you never really see his full face. You just kind of – you'll see his lanky body kind of swagger over and get a beer out of the fridge or something, and you'll hear him yell. And there's always the aftermath. Like, uh, you don't really – You don't really see the kids beaten a lot, but you see them go to bed with like uh, black eyes. This is what I remember anyways. It's been a long time since I've seen it. Um, And then there's there's stuff that happens to their dog that's really, really upsetting and has always upset me. But it's all building towards will they or will they not get away? And if they do get away, will that in and of itself kill them Uh, because of the way that they're planning to get away, which involves the... uh, radio flyer wagon up the title really dark movie i I don't like I said I think Donner has gone on record saying he lightened it up I don't see where um I don't <laughs> see how it's possible uh Elijah wood it was my first ex, it was my first time seeing Elijah wood what an incredibly talented uh child actor still an incredibly talented adult actor although I respect the hell out of him as a producer right now same. he's doing some really great uh horror movies. And Joe, Joseph Mazzello, is that his name? The the other, the boy that plays, plays his brother, he went on to do Jurassic Park and it came from this movie because Steven Spielberg came to visit the set and uh, met Joseph Mazzello and put him in Jurassic Park. At which, of course, Richard Donner was up for Jurassic Park as well. Uh, Michael Crichton really wanted Richard Donner. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's a note. I don't, inside moves, I can justify saying like, there's actually some pretty good laughs. There's, there's no good laughs in- radio flyer it's a very difficult movie to recommend but but it shouldn't go by unmentioned in a filmography like this
1: yeah in fact i i remember it was i mean it was a big i remember the ads for it i remember you know it was a big ish movie it might have been, was it up for like oscars or no in, I, I just, inside moves is the only thing he
0: ever did that got nominated for anything interesting or uh, for anything in the major categories i think his stuff got nominated a lot for
1: effects and things. effects and yeah exactly um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, not, we probably should have peppered that one in the middle and <laughs> not end on one about child abuse, but, yeah, uh, <laughs> but I remember like there's like at this time again, there's these weird things. Like I, I think a boy's life maybe came out a few years around, like there's a lot yeah, of like, right heavy, time. heavy movies about kids being beat like by their, <laughs> like there's just a lot of that going on. And, uh, and it, you know, and then the, a lot of like kids go into their imagination to it, it's just one of those things. But, um, yeah, the thing is i'm glad we did this just because obviously we did it you know in as a way to honor the passing of richard donner and stuff and celebrate his it. but it's also just he's he's not somebody that i would have if, you know if we did a short list of people like let's make an episode about this director donner's not somebody that i think would have automatically come to my mind but then when you sit down and think about the films that he's done and we didn't even get into the things he produced and stuff like that but like right. um he produced um, The Lost Boys. You know, yep. People forget that he produced
0: uh, the first X-Men.
1: It, it's, uh, well, and the thing is like, you know, because we didn't, Lady Hawk, but that's where he met his wife or, you know, Laura. I can't, I'm going to fuck her name, but she's a very well-respected, you know, still to this day, productive active producer i think she is i think yes, she's still producing she yeah she she is yeah i mean she's you know sort of very she was super important in the uh early marvel films and stuff yeah L- lauren um,
0: shuler donner, donner her name, thank you
1: way. i was gonna say yeah, exactly laura they, shuler donner. they they
0: got their stars on the walk of fame the same day i think that's uh one of the cutest things i've ever heard that's a,
1: that's very adorable but yeah anyways but i'm glad we did this is because obviously he's super important in film fantastic director and i'm just i'm happy we did this and i and it, like every time we do this i learned a bunch of fun stuff that i didn't know i feel like every time we talk my my own uh like tr- weird production trivia like film trivia like all those like like anyways the, you're, you're always so you do a lot of uh of uh amazing research and stuff and you you're you have a very extensive knowledge about all those like idiosyncratic, like this out anyways i learned a lot definitely. That's what i'm trying to say my brain injury and almost three hours of recording i think yeah, I, I have yeah. no more brain cells left to spare trying to <laughs> check out, but,
0: um i i do want to say a final thing on richard donner um sure. just kind of speaking off the top of my head because like i said before he was a major influence on my life his work is my first memory of life and his what he did taught me what a director was uh in ways beyond what george lucas or steven spielberg ever did i learned about directing from watching his interviews and from a, understanding his movies growing up and and seeing the the common threads even though you know goonies is nothing like lethal weapon is le- yeah. nothing like superman is nothing like yeah. inside moves yeah. um Everything was so unique, but at the same time, the Richard Donner style ran through it. And uh, we we throw out a lot of hyperbole on this show. You know, so-and-so is brilliant, or such-and-such is visionary. And we sincerely mean most of it. No. Uh, (laughs) uh, So I don't want to say that we don't. But uh, if there's one word that ever applied to any one director ever, Richard Donner can truly be called an expert. Uh, he's the reason why he's not mentioned as much as the Spielberg's and the Lucases is because he wasn't creating this stuff in the same way. He was a journeyman. He was a director for hire and he found other people's scripts and said, Hey, I can do something with this. He, he's not up there with uh hitchcock or ford necessarily he's up there with like william wyler and william wellman and michael curtis and if you're a film geek you you know these names uh and and that's not an insult to say that he's different from these other people it's just to say uh he approached it with a different discipline and he was truly an expert at what he did and whoever would work with him knew they were in the hands of a true expert Uh, i think he was the ultimate expert filmmaker uh and uh he'll continue to be an influence even though outside of that timeline movie uh, (laughs) i i've seen everything i rewatching everything will continue to influence me for the rest of my life
1: but i couldn't say it better man i think that's i think that sums it up
0: (laughs) well thanks for coming out and visiting me again tonight james i
1: know it's been a little while yeah Uh, hopefully we can get the next one out we always but uh, maybe we get the next one out a little bit quicker but uh you know, I know I, I thought this was going to be a very short episode, but I do think we gave a very meaty, hefty, solid episode to our listeners. So at least I feel good about that.
0: Yeah, I think we gave Donner his due as as much of his due as a couple of guys like us can give.
1: Exactly. Two knuckleheads like us.
0: <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, we'll be back soon. Uh, we, we've got something that we're going to try that I think will get us doing some things a little bit faster than we have been. I know that I've been saying that. Uh, but as long as another one of my heroes doesn't die in the next couple of days, <laughs> um, and we've already lost Robert Downey Sr. since uh, yeah, since yeah. Donner. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm crossing my fingers that my favorite filmmakers are safe for a little while and that maybe we can do some more light shows, uh, smaller shows, and, and then get back to the deep dives like like this one. Exactly. But uh I did feel that Ned Beatty deserved a deep dive and then that became Richard Donner. Uh it was an avalanche of of sad movie news right there. That's right. Uh two heroes. So, uh yes, please get out, watch all these movies, learn everything you can from them, uh, and enjoy the hell out of them. And uh in the meantime, be good, stay safe. We'll see you later, James.
1: Take care. Bye. Bye.